It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Got some recapping to do, got some previewing to do, and got some history to talk about, which means I got my dude Eris Pina with me, CompuBox operator, fellow fight historian. Man, we're going. Eris, how you doing, man? Good, man. Really, really good. We had a very exciting and eventful weekend this past weekend in boxing, huh? With um, Canelo, the number one pound for pound, getting knocked off his perch. So, um, yeah, to say the least, this was... um lot to cover here <laughs> yeah man i mean um anytime we were i mean i i said it last week i said it was one of the first things that we talked about at the start of the show previewing dimitri bevel's win over sal canelo alvarez was that canelo alvarez probably should be the top pound for pound fighter in the world that there should be you know maybe a little argument about it but if he is top pound for pound fighter that's cool a lot of people would agree and anytime that top pound for pound fighter loses that's big news dude that's very big news and i mean this was not like a controversial whatever i mean not to me i don't think to you either it was a pretty dominant loss i mean to everybody but the three vegas judges obviously who gave him the first four rounds inexplicably but hey you know what it's one of those things canelo's reached that status that a few that very few fighters reach where you have to shoot them to get a draw almost you know what i mean that's like the old saying was but luckily bevel as a lot of people have put on twitter and it's the damn truth um he whooped on canelo so badly they couldn't they couldn't screw him like no matter what they could make it close and they tried to they tried their damnness if canelo had somehow scored if one of those judges has scored the last round two of those judges scored the last round for alvarez as opposed to bevel we would have had a majority draw like yeah it's unfathomable to think about but what we did see and what did happen was that Bevel put on the best performance of his life. You and I both said this was going to be an incredibly tough fight for Alvarez and that Bevel did have a chance, but we thought that the experience of Alvarez and everything else would be able to pull through. But nah, man, Bevel put on the performance of his career, bro. He just put everything came together for him. Like the movement that he said that would trouble Alvarez, he was, he was using it, that jab, he was fluid with everything. And he just was so disciplined in what he did. He never fell for Alvarez's traps. When Alvarez would lay on the ropes, and that's where he gets comfortable so he can counter off of it and throw his hooks and uppercuts. Bevel never bit, and he made Alvarez lead. Alvarez was totally uncomfortable. And as the fight went gradually on, and whatever Alvarez was trying to do, like the looping overhand rights, he was looking for single power shots. You know, as he was bigger, he wasn't, he's not as fluid with his combinations. He doesn't throw as much, and his stamina could be, it was an issue as well. And Bevel was just able to, you know, just outworked him. He outworked him, he outboxed him. And his strategy worked better than what Alvarez did. It's not to say that Alvarez didn't have his moments. He landed some clean shots that obviously caught the eye of the judges considering how close they made it. But And he totally beat the hell out of Bevel's arm, a strategy that he's used in other fights. 
But um, at the end of the day, Beevil just was able to put it together. And like you said, man, it wasn't really close. I had it 9-3, and that's being kind of generous. Most people had it 10-2. But at the end of the day, um, Canelo Alvarez bit off a little bit more than he can chew with this venture. Not to say that that's a bad thing. You know, great fighters take risks. And as we're going to talk about in a little bit, when you take risks, sometimes you come up short. It happens. But that's the cha- But that's the thing about being a great fighter. You're not just sitting back and just being complacent. You're actually going out there and risking yourself against the best of each division. And you can't knock Alvarez for that. Yeah, we said it in the preview. I know that a lot of people, it's it's the what they what they call the availability heuristic or like the the bias because we've seen Canelo a lot haven't seen Dimitri Bivol nearly as much and that's going to apply to nearly any boxing fan who isn't a really hardcore boxing fan or isn't a big fan of European boxing or something right like I mean if you're not a hardcore boxing fan there's a good chance you've seen Canelo Alvarez a bunch of times and you've seen Dimitri Bivol like twice tops or something right so just based on that alone, I understand the idea that people are going to be surprised. They're going to say, where the fuck did this guy came? He came out of nowhere. When the reality is, no, he did not come out of nowhere. This guy is extremely experienced. He's been, uh, you know, he's uh, been fighting on the international and world-class level since he was very young in the amateurs and now well into the pros. This is not a guy who's, you know, never been on a kind of bigger stage before. He has, obviously not this level. And this was, I think, on some level, a test for Dimitri Bivol. But we talked about it, you know, so I think the correct take here is what you're saying. Um, downplaying Dimitri Bivol, like, as if to downplay Canelo Alvarez is pretty shitty, in my opinion, and pretty stupid. Like saying, yeah, well, you know, he's a nobody. And look, Canelo lost to a nobody. Look at this fucking guy. You know, we've seen some of that. That's fucking bunk. You know, and the idea that uh, also we've seen a number of people downplaying now, especially on the heels of this, like as if they were waiting for Canelo to fucking lose just to be able to say his run over the last two, two and a half years was bullshit. See, I told you he lost. That makes everything he's done in the last two years shit. I told you it was fucking overrated. No, dude, we, just as we said on this last show, he's stayed more active than top level fighters overall, especially during the pandemic. And on top of staying active, has actually accomplished some shit that's worthwhile. Uh, obviously the fighters that he's beating don't hold a fucking torch to the all-time great fighters that people want to, well, what about Ray Robinson? Stop using the absolute pinnacle of the fucking mountain, okay, as the analogy, because nobody's going to live up to that, and there's no shame in not living up to that, so stop. You know, it's not going to work that way. Nonetheless, what Canelo has been doing over the last few years, it is impressive, and as you said, he... uh, Whatever the motivation, whether it's money, whether it's glory, legacy, testing himself, whatever it is, nobody really fucking knows. But he reached. He reached and he reached too far. We talked about that possibility last week that he could be going up to against a fighter that's too big and too good. And, you know, some combination of that. And so a lot of people in the wake of this loss are talking about what Canelo didn't do and how he lost. But that is true. But Dimitri Bivol. He's, he seized the moment. He absolutely stepped in and did what he was supposed to do when he was supposed to do it. He had an active jab and he fought in a way a lot of people thought that he had kind of slid away from over the last handful of fights. 
uh, he got far more active when he was supposed to be. And he, he put on a master class, basically. He made Canelo look as if he didn't really belong in there. And that's kind of going to be a theme that we talk about, like with the history stuff. But yeah, it was, it was obviously surprising. It was surprising to see Canelo you know, proverbially neutered that way. It basically made that he can't made to be ineffective. Uh, he was trying to go after Dimitri Bivol's arm, you know, like you said, didn't quite work. Although Bivol said after the fight, it hurt that his arm hurt. Um, but I think that uh, I don't want to get too, too much into like tactical shit because I know that bores a lot of people. But one thing that I noticed was that Canelo, he didn't really use his jab nearly as much. And he was just loading up on his right hand which is something that like we haven't really seen as much from him. Like he's been far more um, creative with his offense, far more diverse with his offense in his last handful of fights. And it looked like he was just really trying to force the right hand for some reason. Like he thought the right hand was the key and Bevel was wise to it very early and was covering up for it and was timing it. He just didn't have it. So I thought he could have used a left uppercut, left hook a little more, et cetera. But, you know, it, it's academic. Even if he had opened up with those punches, it looked like Dimitri Bivol would have been wise to that shit. So it was a really impressive performance from Dimitri Bivol. And it, man, and my question to you is, does Canelo fucking go back into this rematch? Dude, that sounds like a really bad idea to me. I mean, do you agree? Seems bad. Style-wise, yeah, man. I think Bivol proved that he might have been a little bit too much for Canelo. and um. Even Alvarez kind of alluded to that a little bit after the fight when he said that he knows his best weight is at 175, but probably at 168, where he's, you know, a unified champion. But here's the thing. Evil also said after the fight that he could probably <laughs> slim down to 168 himself pretty easily. He said that before he fought Canelo as well. So and he he likes the chance of maybe, you know, getting all four belts at once. Imagine that. Imagine what kind of fucking monster just whoops your ass. And then you're like, you know what? Too big. I'm going to go back down. He's like, I'm following you. Know, you. I'll come down. I'm going to fucking you. get you. I'll come down there with you. And you're like, what? No. Get the fuck away. I'm trying to run away from you. I mean, Alvarez said immediately after the fight that he wants to run it back, right? Um, I could see that scenario, but in all honesty. You feel honesty, that sting? Be- That's pride fucking with you. Yeah, fuck pride. absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think... Yeah, um, I think it still might be – I'd still be interested more in the Triple G third fight. And I think um, Golovkin actually has more momentum now going into this fight than Alvarez does, considering what just happened in these two fights. So that might still be a better alternative. Instead of going directly into a rematch with people where it can almost be like another Vernon Forrest-Shane Mosley fight. Like, remember the first fight? Yeah, man. Vernon Forrest just absolutely whooped Mosley. Dropped him, beat him up. Wasn't really close. Alvarez didn't get dropped in this fight, but he got whooped pretty comprehensively, and it wasn't that close. Mosley went immediately into a rematch because that was the type of thing he did. He was a very prideful guy. Did the same thing against Winky Wright a few years later. And in both fights, he lost. You know, in the, in the, in the Verdon Forest rematch, he was a little bit more competitive, but he still lost a pretty comprehensive decision. Same thing in the second Winky Wright fight. And I think the boxing consensus right now is if Bevel and Alvarez fought again immediately afterwards, what's already happened, even though Alvarez probably would, you know, be a little bit more aggressive or try to change tactics or maybe not be a vegan this time, whatever he's going to do. I have no idea, but um, you can't think Bevel wouldn't improve off of his performance either. He already knows what he's against and what he's dealing with. So 
I mean, look, dude, I, I have nothing against veganism whatsoever. So like, this is not, of course not. I was just, I was just throwing yeah. out. Things no, no. And, and um, I know you don't either because of the Mexican meat thing from earlier. Remember when yeah. that was like, Oh yeah. It tainted me. And he got, um, tested positive for something ridiculous and, and he was talking about his favorite food is tacos which i 100 respect i also mm-hmm. extremely love tacos myself but <laughs> i i just seems like a i don't know whatever dude it's all good veganism's cool i just don't know why you would switch it up like that especially if you're like getting bigger you wait yeah 100. i don't know yeah court uh like our friend Corey Erdman will be like really an expert on that because he practices as a point. Vegan, and so he would he would know better than i ever would but well, like, and and I don't, and it's, for me, it's not that he's switching to veganism. It's just that he's changing it all. Like it yeah. would be like if he were vegan before, but then decided to eat meat. Like, I just Isn't don't know why you Bradley that. did actually at one point. Then like Bradley become a vegan while he was in training for his fights and then would kind of switch back. Cause clearly I, I we've seen so, him yeah. his, you know, with his bacon and say, what his bacon sandwiches he ate on. Um, <laughs> he's <laughs> sitting there eating and calling the, I said, fucking Timmy. This is a yeah. bacon and bread sandwich, Tess. <laughs> the japans yeah dude, Bradley. dude i mean he's he, at this point it's like comic relief but yeah i think I so that. i think he did but i i just don't know why you would switch it like that if you haven't before you know it just it seems like a bad idea but and it seems like something that people could easily point to and go oh it's the vegan and that's what people are doing but but I, the main thing is i think 175 in general is just too is too is too much of a stretch for alvarez and um and I'm and I I totally agree. And I think when we look back at the circumstances of the Kovalev fight, I think that that's a little more clear. As we point. talked about too, that Kovalev has already damaged goods that fight. Here he had a quick turnaround from a brutal fight with Yarde. He had a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, he got hurt real bad against Yard too. Like so, I mean, he got hurt real bad against Yard. So I mean, yeah. it's it was almost kind of like seemed to me almost like ill advised that he would even get back in. But the money. Yeah, I, him off. he'll do that. But you know, I wanted this other cherry pick. Is oh, Canelo has always cherry picked everybody. That was a big challenge that everybody was like really intrigued by. And to Kovalev's credit, he was very competitive for the first half of the fight, but you know, until he fell apart. But I mean, um, yeah, it was one of those things. I don't. I want to say Alvarez took him lightly, but like you can see, there wasn't a certain the way he's fought in other past fights and the discipline he had. It just wasn't here. Maybe it was. I think it just was because 175 is just a little bit too much for him. Like the way he moved up, you can see he was noticeably a little bit slower. As he's moved up in weight, he's never been like super fast on his feet. Like he's nimble and he has, you know, quick movement, but excuse me, he's not a guy that's going to be like moving around and really quick. Like people was able to move around him pretty comprehensively. Um, also as well, he, um, his fatigue, which he's also had issues with in the past, really crept up, crept up on him much more in this fight. He's bigger now. He's asked to wait, you know, there's no catch weight for him or anything like that. He's carrying on more weight. And like you said, with all the times he's throwing those single, those single power shots, he was putting everything behind it. Kind of like how he's hitting those bags in the, in the highlight videos that we see. And if you watch that, like those take energy out of you, you know what I mean? Those are all like home run hits all the time. It's not just trying to set up shots, uh, shots. There was a couple of times he do that, but for the most part, like you said, every time he was going for his arm, boom, or if he was going for a right hand, he'd throw like a wing and really, really hard right. And then like an uppercut type thing and be like a brief flurry. But then you see him come back and like, I have to take a gasp of breath, you know? So. Yeah, dude. It, and he was whiffing in a number. Of, like I said, he was loading up. Bevel was wise to it. He saw that shit. You know, like mm-hmm. we saw it. <laughs> it was so obvious that it that that's what he was looking for. 
And um, yeah, those kinds of misses, man, they really seem to be taking it out of him. And then I think that it was also, it, he looked visibly frustrated. Um, oh. You know, we, I'm, this is not a plug whatsoever, but we were on the ppb.com chat for Canelo Bevel or for Bevel Canelo, we should say. Um, and so that was like what the people were saying in the chat as the fight wore on that he looked more, that Canelo looked frustrated that he looked like he was, you know, pissed that he wasn't able to really get anything going, that he was losing momentum. That's you could visibly see it. And a lot of that had to do with that strategy of having to like wing punches. I mean, there are, there's a lot to point to here and I don't want to just start kind of like uh, picking at excuses for why Canelo lost or say like, Oh, it's because of this thing or that thing. But just in general, when fighters move up a division, one thing I've never totally understood, and, and this especially I think bears out when you look at the a number of fighters from history who had moved up, a lot of the time they didn't hit the limit. They didn't max out at that division's limit when they moved up. You know what I'm saying? Like if they went from middleweight to light heavyweight, they were still weighing like 167. They weren't just going from 160 to 175. You know what I mean? Like, and so I don't know why Canelo wouldn't just hit like 170 or 169. Nice. You know, well, that's what shit. a lot of guys in history would do. Like you said, they were coming a lot lighter sometimes, not even in the same division almost. And I, so you know, I don't know. He wanted to hit at the highest limit. That is a little off. When he, at the very least, while I don't think Canelo is used to like, uh, he's not a mover, he does use his footwork to set up opportunities. And he couldn't do that against Bivol because he, I think in part, because he was too heavy. So to me, it just seemed like a bad idea for him to be weighing in, in next to the limit. And anyway, well, he's not like really, I mean, he's not a tall guy. either. No, like, he's not like that. No, he's around. I'm like two or three inches taller than him. And I'm not even that tall. Yeah. I'm five, seven. He's around five, seven, five, eight. So it's, yeah, he's not a big dude. So anyway, I mean, it's, yeah, we could talk about the excuses all day, but, um, Bivol also, like I said, rose to the occasion. You know, he really got his jab working. Put on an absolute clinic, man. He is for only, like, again, we know he had a very, very extensive amateur background. And that's been the premise of, like, a fast track to his career. But after only 18, 19 fights, even so, like, rising to that occasion, a lot of people can still be kind of awed by that moment. And he wasn't. If you saw his demeanor during the ring walk and after the fight when people were interviewing and asking Oh, so what'd you think of Canelo's, you know, like big entrance and everything like that? Were you like, oh, he was like, oh, I just thought it was cool and bright. It was awesome. You know, like he was just kind of joking. Like he was, he understood where he was at. And he, I think he was a little loud at first, but like, he knew where just, it was time to take care of business. Like when the bell rang, it's still a fight. It's just him and, you know, him and Canelo and that's it. It's a big event, but this was a time to shine. And that's exactly what he did. A lot of fighters are kind of awed by that and their performance gets affected because of it. You know, even though they could be more competitive with Canelo, um, they get odd in the moment and, you know, kind of underperform than what they usually be able to do. And Bevel instead rose to the occasion and just not even rose to it, but surpassed it. Yeah, as far as Canelo fights go, um, I think this one seemed a little bit understated. Not quite. There wasn't quite as much buzz overall. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a handful of reasons for that. And one of the reasons, in my opinion, I could be wrong and I could be, you know, it might've been a reason, but I'm wrong to the degree it was a reason, but <clears throat> they weren't really able to get into much of Dimitri Bebel's backstory for the promotion. And mm -hmm. I think that was intentional 
because of what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Um, because inevitably what's going to happen is someone's going to ask Dmitry Bivol, what do you think about what's going on in Ukraine? And that's, that's a fucking PR nightmare. Totally. Just even being asked that question. Because the only way to a- answer it is like the most diplomatic way possible. You know, like, oh, I'm, I'm just an athlete. You know, that's, that's literally the only thing you can do. Because anything beyond that, dude, you're pissing somebody off or you're going to fuck up. And he still has to go home to Russia, to my knowledge. So, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Or, I mean, I know that he's from Russia and I know that he had lived in the U.S., but to my knowledge, I don't know. I could be wrong. But whatever. I, that's not even really that important as far as that goes. I mean, just in terms of being able to promote the fight, in my opinion, that affected it. And also... I'm slightly surprised it didn't affect Bivol more just because I don't know. I figured it would, I figured that it might be uh, added pressure on him or whatever. But again, even if it was uh, he overcame it very easily. So, you know, I, I think that that's kind of an interesting aspect of this, but whatever it is, uh, Dimitri Bivol, <laughs> he was totally cool and collected. He didn't give a shit, man. So I think that that a fighter like that who's able to just kind of set those things aside and just go to work, that's dangerous. Um, and that was the kind of thing where I think that on another level, Dimitri Bivol scoring this win, and this is something that was, that's been brought up in a number of different articles in the wake of the fight, it was almost like scoring a win against the boxing establishment uh, for a number of people because... Canelo has gotten, or if he hasn't won the decisions, he has gotten the benefit of a number of close decisions, um, whether they were draws or, you know, went his way. And then on top of that, you know, anytime a fighter has gotten televised for the vast majority of their career, you know, that's a, that's a fighter that's fairly privileged overall. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people see that. And they think that Canelo is getting the benefit of that privilege, that he's the superstar, but not a superstar because of what he's done, but because he's a celebrity or something, you know? I mean, him winning the first four rounds of the fight kind of tells you that in general. It's like, that's insanity. Yeah. There's no way Canelo won four round, the first four rounds. That's... No. All right. If you want to score Sugar Rain Leonard beating Marvin Hagler in the first four rounds, that's an easier argument to make compared to what this was. All right. Like... I think I had a 3-1 Bevel or two at around that point. But if Canelo won the majority of his rounds, it was that it was either then and then went round nine. After that, when you know, when he lost him after that. But like for for those judges to score the first four rounds, Steve Weisfeld and the other ones, like to be able to score the first four rounds, that clearly you have your shades on and you just kinda of going by the motions and going, you know, kind of throwing it like you just you're throwing the book at them. You don't even really give a shit at that point. It's like you see what's going on. You hear the thud. Oh, look at the crowd. Boom, boom, boom. He must have won a round right there. Bevel's just pawing with his jab. He's not doing anything. Like, he really had to go above and beyond. Otherwise, they were going to... If he got screwed in that fight, this would have been on par. Say if this was a draw. This would have been on par with... Not only would it have been, like, the first Canelo Triple G fight, which people have always been crowing about, and deservedly so, but we're still going to... We can even go um, further back on that. You can talk about the first Lewis Holyfield fight. You can talk about Chavez Whitaker. This would be right up there with them. Like, Bevel legitimately won this fight. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. This was not 115-113. Like, the fact that it was that close just shows you how how much the Vegas judges already had it in the bag for Canelo. Not to say that it was, like, 
you know, um, fixed or anything. But I'm just saying, like, how they just usually are, like you alluded to already. They just take care of the guy and whatever's going on. If it's a fairly close round, they're just going to give it to the house guy because, hey, why not? And Canelo kind of gets those privileges, as Mayweather did, as other fighters have in the past. And fights that are, should be fairly close usually end up being wide. And um, you have to really outright beat him. Canelo was outright beaten that night. And they still made it that close that, like, they were finding a way to really do something. You know what I mean? They were finding any way that they could. Like, if it wasn't for that last round, if Beeble didn't really whoop on him that last round, if Canelo landed a flurry, like, including a giant uppercut that snapped his head back at one point, they would have scored that round for him. This fight would have been a draw. Everyone would have been an uproar. <clears throat> yeah. No, I agree, dude. It, they, there was no business. Uh, Canelo really had no business winning more than, you know, two or three rounds. And I totally. like you said, I thought that 9-3 was about appropriate and that even with that three, I was kind of like, there was one of those rounds where I was like, mm, that could have gone to Bivol. Exactly, so, exactly. I mean, it, it just wasn't close, dude. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that going straight into that rematch, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that... It's a pride thing. Yeah, it's... It's not really going to, well, I mean, there's a lot to risk. I think that having that one loss, especially with people like us who are kind of looking that, looking at it as like, well, he challenged himself. You know, you're going to lose when you challenge yourself. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, getting that kind of loss is, I don't want to say like it's excusable, but it's understandable. And, you know, I'm not going to get up his ass about that shit. But two losses in a row, especially to the same guy is going to blunt his momentum a lot more, especially if he's going to have to slow down his pace a bit in order to get that rematch or to go into that rematch and know that it's going to be like in September or something like that, rather than two months from now. Um, That's, that's the kind of thing where like, yeah, okay. Now again, you're slowing your pace down. And then if you get another loss, that's a brick wall status, bro. So I think that's a bad idea. I think that catching Golovkin at this point where Golovkin got a big, exciting win, but also looked very older in that win. He looked fairly vulnerable in that win. I think that, dude, I think that's really just the right way to go. You go back down, uh, you know, be like, hey, Dimitri, good job. Get the fuck away from me and don't come to super middleweight. Stay up there, buddy. (laughs) Go down defend the super middleweight title against Golovkin, make his ass come up. And then assuming you beat him, open your door to whoever it is, Benavidez, Char, or uh, yeah, I guess if Charlo wanted to go up, if Dimitri Bivol wanted to go down after that, fine. But I don't know. I just think that that's the much better idea overall. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised at this point, I guess, if he just went with the Bivol rematch. You know, that's, that's probably what's going to go on, especially after the fight when... I mean, during the original interview that he had in the ring right immediately after the fight, uh, it seemed like that he was giving Bivol his props and, you know, seemed that he was going okay with the decision. Like, he was accepting it. And then at the post-fight presser, apparently, you know, his true feelings started to come out again that he said um, that Bivol, he felt Bivol only won about four or five rounds at the most, but he thought that he clearly won the fight. And, you know more to something to that effect. And um, a person with that mindset clearly is a guy that is probably going to be looking ahead to a rematch. Canelo is a very proud, proudful, uh, prideful guy. You know, the last time he lost was the first time he lost was against Floyd Mayweather, when he was still relatively young. And um, 
you know, the way he talks and the way he feels, he does feel like he's the king of the boxing world and he feels that he's going to be an all-time great one day. And for him to take a loss like this in a fight that he thought he was clearly going to win, and he did before the fight. I'm not to say that he didn't take it seriously, but like, he was very confident beforehand. Oh, Beevil can't do anything I haven't seen before. You know, was anything, I, I don't care. Like, he was just very matter-of-factly thinking ahead that whatever he did, it would work again and that <clears throat> he'd be able to, you know, push through him and then go on to the Triple G fight. And um, it didn't work out that way. He got visibly frustrated throughout the fight and ended up losing. And it's like, you know, it, with, with that happening now, you know, you got to wonder. Um, he's going to try to make the proper adjustments in this one. He's going to think about what he's going to have to do. It's going to be like festering with him for a little bit, you know, after watching the tape and all the other stuff. But I think he's probably going to go into an immediate rematch. A guy like this and losing to someone that he felt mm -hmm. that he clearly could have beat and the fact that he lost in his bid to become a late heavyweight champion again is going to like push him more as opposed to fighting guys like Benavides and Charlo, who, even though they'd be really top challengers and a lot of people would love to see them, including you and I, um, he doesn't feel that as the challenge as a guy, as opposed to someone who just beat him. If that makes sense. It does. I, yeah. and I it does make sense. And I think that that's spot on. And I think that that's kind of like the proofs in the freaking pudding, bro. He just got yeah, beat. Yeah. And so now he feels as though, well, that's the challenge. That that, that dude just beat me. I got to get back and beat him. Totally. I'm not saying I agree. I'm like I under, I obviously don't understand because I'm not a world class fucking anything. But <laughs> you know, like I, I get it. I get it from his perspective. I'll it's say just, this too. It's man. a dangerous game. Very. And I'll say this too. At least this fucking curbed the talk about him trying to fight Usyk. <laughs> No oh offense, I'm sure some people would find it to be interesting or whatever, but this isn't Roy Jones fighting John Ruiz. Usyk would have actually yeah. just slapped him badly. If he thought what Bevel did to him was bad. Yeah. And I like Canelo, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I think he's a great fighter, obviously a block for the Hall of Fame and all this other stuff, but like that just, you want to talk about a step too far. I mean. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, and that's it. Bevel's a little bit more active. He's got a couple, he's even a couple inches larger than Dimitri mm -hmm. Bevel. Or did I say Usyk? Sorry, Usyk's a little more active. He's a little more, a couple, got a couple inches on Dimitri Bevel. Like that would have been, that would have been massacre status. Cause to me, yeah. Canelo started looking in the last, like, you know, the latter half of the 10th round, 11th round, 12th round. He started almost looking like this. He's like, I'm, I'm, proud of this guy making through this this is kind of a brave performance he's starting to get get whooped on a little bit like the last couple of rounds he was he was looking very tired and there were a couple points at which uh it almost looked like if bivol had really stepped it up he could have stopped him not because he was hurt but because he was so tired and exhausted and like yeah. he just wasn't punching back and i was just thinking man yeah, when you said that after the fight, imagine if people are talking about Usyk and shit like that. And I was like, dude, if he would have gotten like that against Usyk, it would have been night-night status, bro. <laughs> I mean... Clearly. Yeah. So, I mean, every, I guess the overarching point here is that everybody's got a limit, dude. There, There is a limit, and especially if you don't have the kind of frame, like a Tommy Hearns frame, dude, where you're like 6'3", and just gangly and can hold and you know your frame can carry a lot of weight although when tommy hearns got up to like 175 and a little over he still had the string being legs bro that's true he was a little top heavy bro tommy hearns almost reached his limit because if there's some articles that we talked i've sent him to you we've talked about it in the past he wanted to fight mike tyson 
all right, at one point in the mid 80s, we're, and it's not like we're talking about in the in around late 80s, early 90s or something. No, Tommy Hearns wanted to fight Mike Tyson in 1987, soon after he fought Ron Roland. He was talking about fighting Mike Tyson after that. So, yeah. I love you want Tommy to come on a step too far and biting off more than you can chew. I'm so happy he did not do that. <laughs> I think all of us are. And he was quoting oh, things saying, Oh, I'm bigger than Tyson. If I can do this and that, I think I'm, you know. And yeah, God bless him. I love Tommy too. And like you said, he was a freak of nature with his body and all that. And he was able to pack on all the way to cruiserweight near the at the end of his career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On. With Uriah Grant when he when he lost yeah, that fight. Yeah, it was cruiserweight. Yeah, when Nate Camp uh, not Nate Campbell, excuse me. Um Nate, his name was Nate. All right, Nate was Miller. Nate, uh, Nate Miller. Yeah, there we Nate go. Miller. Nate Miller from Philadelphia. Yeah. Beat him. You know. Hearns was, was credible up until the end. But if he had fought Mike Tyson in 1987, I, you know, there would have been a whole new massacre we would have been talking about besides uh, Robinson Lamada. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, I'm so happy that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. So, well, look, I'm, I, I don't think that either of us were shocked by this verdict. I think that what was surprising was how thorough it was because I think that we both expected a little bit more, a little bit more oomph from Canelo. I think a lot of people did really. I mean, I, I don't think that it's wrong to expect that, but it wasn't shocking to us that it happened. It was just shocking the way that it happened. And man, yeah, it was, it was, I, I will say though, I think that it seeing those kind of verdicts every so often, it's good. It's good to have stuff shaken up. It's good to kind of have the status quo upset a little bit. And also on top of that, it's good to have a new entrant in Dimitri Bivol into, I'm not going to say like pound for pound, but I mean, now he's kind of arrived. He's there. People are more people than ever before are going to want to see, well, what about that guy that beat Canelo? You know, even if they don't rematch, they're going to want to see what happens with that guy. So it's, it's, I think overall a good thing. This was like huge. This was, for Bevel's career, you can see the, you know, the joy in his face. This is the biggest fight of his career at this point. Probably will be the biggest fight of his career. Maybe we don't know what's going to happen in his future, but like this was huge. And for him to beat not only the top pound for pound guy, but a guy that like people were comparing to like a generational talent and what he was doing and chasing history and all this stuff, like this was huge. And to actually get a decision against them, which a lot of people have come close, but it's just almost next to impossible. Again, huge. So Beevil's on top yeah. of the world. There's going to be a big scrum now uh, toward the top of the pound for pound there ratings. Is. Absolutely. You know, we talked about this last week. It's, it's imaginary. It's subjective. You, I mean, this quickly, do you think this knocks Canelo off of number one now? I, actually, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that it probably does. But I, I, I seen people putting him down at like six, seven, eight. And I'm like, no, not what? even close. Come, come on, bro. Not, like, man. come on. If you, know, you it, want to put him at number three, then that's even like really pushing it. But like, I feel like moving him much doesn't make a lot of sense because it's not like it's not as if he was beaten by a fellow super middleweight or somebody at middleweight. Mm -hmm. He moved up and lost to somebody in a different division. Now, I guess the argument could be that, well, that's what pound for pounds for is, you know, weight being equal, the skills or blah, blah, blah. I mean, whatever. Like I said, it's subjective. It's imaginary. So you could use it however you want. I mean, you can apply whatever criteria you want. But if you're talking about what a fighter has done lately and what that matters on a pound for pound level, I just don't see it changing that much. You want to put him down to like three or four or something, that, you know, whatever. I think that's kind of pushing it, but I just don't really see 
I don't think that this loss to Dimitri Bivol all of a sudden erases what he's done in the last like two totally. to three years. And then what I had said earlier on Twitter is that what what other fighters in the last two or three years have fought on this level with the same success? There are a handful of fighters who have fought on that level, but most of them have losses. Most of them, you know, have or have more losses. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with it. Obviously, we would prefer a fighter to challenge themselves and lose than to just never challenge themselves. But that's my argument is that there just aren't very many fighters, period. Maybe two or three other fighters who have fought on that level for the same time frame. So I just don't see a great argument. And if you're talking about bouncing them all around, I think that there's probably an agenda behind your argument. I got you. Absolutely. You know? Totally, totally. It's, it's, especially like you said, the way the boxing world is now too, man, everybody's just kind of complacent and everyone's like, well, you got to show me the money, you know, well, I'm on this network and blah, blah, blah. Canelo is the one guy who is willing to challenge whoever it is and has the power to be able to do so because he's above the network. He's above everything. So if he's choosing you, you're the one who feels privileged to be like, Hey, I want to fight you next. Okay. You know, I'm not tied to anybody. I'll go to Showtime and be able to do this. Well, you know, I want to fight a guy on um, on zone now. I'm going to switch over to this one. Hell, he can – anything he wants to do, man. He can bring back viewers' choice from the early 90s on pay-per-view if he wanted to. Like, he had that type of power. So, uh, it's – for Bevel now, I mean, he might be – I'm sure a lot of people are saying he should crack the top 10. And he and maybe so. Like, a lot of people are calling for Shakur Stevenson to crack the top 10 after this fight. And I would I would make a better case for Bevel doing it after – because I think it's a more significant win, um, you know, for maybe for the lower case. Like, I'm not going to say put him in the top five or anything like that, but if you want to put him around like eight, nine, or 10, then he definitely deserves a case for that, especially if you look at his resume too and who he's beaten before then. So, yeah, there's a lot of shakeup. There's a lot of things going on, and this is the beauty of boxing, man. For the fact that the number one pound for pound was able to get beat and beat comprehensively like that is, um, is always a positive. I mean, I'm sure a lot of fans are very devastated. A lot of people are devastated, but, you know, this de- develops a scrum now that is going to produce a lot of excitement. And I'm excited for it. I'm sure you are too. I am. And I think that this also, I mean, I'm not going to say that Canelo losing increases the, the chance of uh, Spence Crawford happening, but maybe it does mm-hmm. even just a little bit because maybe now Spence and Crawford want that fucking number one spot. You know, maybe now they say, ah, well, there's going to be an argument now. I mean, I'll see, bro. Uh, let's the, hope so. Let's hope so. Uh, yeah. Right? Like I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to try to convince myself something weird, but I hope so. I hope so. But before we get to this history stuff though, dude, I did want to ask you this weekend, we have a very good fight. We have a good rematch between dude. I swear. I freaking swear, bro. Jermel Charlo and Brian Castaño. Yeah. I am I'm honestly excited for this because that first fight was like that first fight the, was awesome, man. That was fight of the year level status. You know, it was back and forth. It was a very, very good fight. And you know, and their styles mesh so well. It's like peanut butter and jelly. You like peanut butter and jelly, I hope. I do like peanut butter and jelly. Oh, as, as long as okay. it's the correct jelly. But yes, I do. Nah, like yeah, it. you gotta have the right ratio. But I'm just saying, like their their styles just mesh really well together, like some shit like that. You know what I mean? And when you got and you always know that if you get two styles like that, that they're always going to produce good fights. There's no way there's going to have like a dud in between at some point. 
yeah, dude, there was just, there was something about like Castaño was able to get Charlo to trade more than he wanted to, sure. but then like, you know, Charlo was able to kind of pull it out a little bit here and there. It was, that was a really exciting fight, man. I, yeah, I was surprised actually that they're going back into a rematch as soon as they are because it's, because it's the kind of fight. What's that? I say kudos to both of them, but when you oh, think yeah. about it, that's the best thing that they can do because who else is around them that's as enticing as fighting each other again? And I mean, I guess it makes sense. It, it makes sense for them to do it because it's for the uh, the Ring Junior Middleweight Championship. It's mm -hmm. a big fight. It was a big fight the first time. It was an exciting fight. I I was almost talking about like on the on the level of like they could use some rest. You know, like it was a it was a pretty brutal fight. I thought that they would both kind of like get each get a win and then come back to it. Nah, man, they're going right back for it. And I respect that, you know, but I, I think that they're both the kind of fighters that, uh, I mean, I know Jamel Charlo, he's not cool with getting the draw. He doesn't like the verdict in that first fight. He's uh, talking about proud fighters. Both mm -hmm. he and his brother are not the kind of fighters that are, you know, going to be okay with a draw or okay with, you know, all right, well, we got by that fight. Now let's, let's move on. They don't really seem like that. Neither does Brian Castaño. So I'm happy that they're getting back to it because it's it's probably going to be another exciting, brutal fight. Oh, it's going to be an awesome fight. It's, and I'll, I'll say this too, man, like working for CompuBox, I've seen a lot of guys over the years I've been able to like watch ringside even early in their career. And these are both, these are two guys I've seen early, early on in their career. So to see from there and not really knowing where they would end up one day to see where they're at now. So like Castaño, for instance, I saw him in Shelton, Washington, of all places. You know, like you're, you live in the PNW area, right? Yep. Like, so do you know where Shelton, Washington is? I like, yes, I know where it is, but I've never been there. It, there's nothing to see out there. Yeah, it's, but, um, it's like just east of like Seattle-ish. So there was a casino for a showbox fight. Because, you know, a showbox sometimes has like the most random locations for some of their fights. And this was a uh, Al Heyman PBC show. So this was in the middle of, like I said, Shelton, Washington. Uh, me and Lee Groves were working it. It's, there was like a big forest, and then you see a random casino in the middle of it, and that's where the fight was held. And Brian Castaño fought very deep on the undercard. I'm not even sure if he was televised or not. And I remember watching him, and me and Lee were both really impressed with him just because of the way he fought, his fluidity, everything like that. Like, he absolutely annihilated his opponent. But I was, for the brief moment I saw him in the ring, I was really, really impressed. And um i'll tell you who the main event was that he was buried under dominic wade against sam solomon wow yeah wow he's definitely, he's definitely australian grown, middleweight he's definitely sam grown. solomon yeah yeah he's definitely grown leaps and bounds since then um and then as it comes to jamel charlo years ago we're talking probably close to a decade now i don't i want to say it was probably an adonis stevenson fight because that's probably why i was in montreal or quebec or wherever it was held but um he or it was either that or it might have been like a DeGale fight, D James DeGale against Lucian Boutte. One of those, one of those around that time. So that gives you like a timeline of when it was. But he was still young in his career. And he was fighting a guy by the name of uh, Charlie Oda, who was, a, who was a tough fighter from the mid-2010s mid and stuff like that. And he went the distance. I think he got knocked down briefly in the fight. And it was like a kind of tough one that he had to struggle through before he won a decision. And so just to give you an idea, I would watch both of them, seeing all that, and then see them both come through, especially both Charlo brothers, like, develop the way they have, man. It's been absolutely awesome. 
I'm fans of both guys. Like you said, they produce one of the best fights of the year, and this fight's a can't miss. Like, like I said, we get, we've been getting so much good back-to-back action now. We had Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano and Shakur Stevenson's coronation um, a week or so ago. Now, this past weekend, we just had um, the huge upset with Canelo Alvarez, and now we have this fight coming up. Like, this is, you know, perfect for boxing fans. I, I couldn't really ask for a whole lot more action personally, you know I mean? And there's oh, only man, so much you great. can, there's We're only so much you can... right now, as much as we complain and we have a whole lot of rights to oh. complain for a bunch of shit, but like, this is really good right now. I'm very, very happy. No question, dude. Absolutely. No question. Uh, the action's been really good. The fights have been really good. There's only so much you can do as far as, you know, ensuring that the fights are good. You can't, you can't, guarantee the fights are going to be good but you can only match them up on paper how they're supposed to be matched up and they have been they've been matched really well they've very well produced last weekend was fun and actually you know i i did i guess i didn't even think about it until you said something but i saw jermel charlo um knock out dennis duglin mama's boy Mm -hmm. bro that was either 2012 or 2013 God damn. Long, yeah. The Charlo brothers have been Jesus. around a long time, man. They yeah, were like, was... they're, they're two of Al Heyman's earlier fighters too. Like a lot of people, I'm that not was... sure a lot of people realize that, but they've been yep. around a long time. That was on the, <laughs> well, and I mean, some of the circumstances since then have kind of been like, hmm, that was on the undercard of Jose Cito Lopez and Victor Ortiz. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That was the, the old upset special. That oh, was, yeah, a, was. <laughs> that was a golden boy card. And when you look at the fighters on that card and like almost all of them wound up at PBC, it's kind of like, you know, the, the uh, promoter of record is Richard Schaefer. And it's kind of like, Hmm, like you get, you start to see the wheels rolling on a lot of the shit that was going to be happening over the next few years. You start seeing Wilder, you start seeing Broner, Keith Thurman, Garcia. You start seeing all these fighters who eventually trickled to PBC. I'm just saying tricky dick schaefer <laughs> wooza that's a podcast episode for another day i guess one day yeah right? yeah well <laughs> ain't gonna be in the good graces of a lot of people on social media but it is what it is but you know yeah i, I actually forgot about that till you said something dude that was on the undercard of jose, jose cito lopez versus victor ortiz uh humberto soto i want to say fought on that card yeah dude that was omar figueroa jr i mean i've like again i i've you know, the Charlos are kind of polarizing to some people. You either really like their attitude or you, you find them <laughs> abrasive and crazy. But, like, I, I you know, I, I like those. I like that type of attitude. I grew up watching wrestling. And the people that are really obnoxious and crazy and over the top, I've always kind of, like, you know, gravitated towards. So I'm a fan of the Charlo brothers. Although um, that attitude era is when shit really resuscitated, you know? I, I'm saying, well, you know, I mean, yeah, bro. I'm a, I'm a product of the Stone Cold. I, like, I... I first became a fan of the Hulk Hogan, Andre, late Andre the Giant, you know, Earthquake, Ultimate Warrior, Macho Man era. But, like, obviously my golden years of, like, a young teenager was in the Austin Rock um, attitude era of just shit being absolutely wild and anything goes on television. So, yeah. Yeah, the the pelvic thrust with the, you know, the, yeah, that was. And that's the most minor thing going on on TV back then. Exactly. And all the other wild stuff. No shit. Shit, (laughs) I brought a Val Venus the other day, dude. Like looking back, some of that flow was just like, what was up? Val Venus is an awful human now. So we shouldn't even bring him up. Mr. You know, conspiracy theory, 
wild ass. Yeah, he's he's a whole other bag. I didn't even know that, but I just bro, he sucks. That doesn't surprise me whatsoever, though. Yeah, man. I was yeah, and yeah, the big Valbowski, not a good dude. (laughs) No, no, not not particularly. But dude, the Charlos, like, I mean, I get it. You know what I'm saying? I understand what a lot of people are are saying. I just think they're wrong (laughs) because the shit they say is just like, you know, this is a sport of gentlemen. No, it's not. This is, you're supposed to be nice. No, you're not. You're fucking punching people. You know, like you're supposed to be respectable. Says who, you know, like it's no. So, I mean, you can still be a gentleman and knock a dude's head off. Like, you know, but there's only so many Alexis Arguellos to go around. Well, yeah, you don't have to, and you know, but that's the whole point is that like, there's room for all sorts of personalities and kinds of people. And I'm not saying I want awful human beings hanging around the sport, but I'm saying in terms of like, you know, sportsmanship, I'm not saying awful sportsmanship, like kicking a dude after you knock him down, but I'm, I'm talking about like, you know, you knock somebody clean out and then after they get up and like their corners, like, Oh, Hey, good fight. And you're like, fuck Mm -hmm. you. You know, like you were talking shit beforehand, go fuck yourself. Yeah, 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 totally. If somebody's mad, there's nothing like what I don't understand why all of a sudden that's against the decorum of boxing. People can be mad, you know, it happens. Like, and so, in from that perspective, I do like the Charlos, dude, because they, as they say, they keep that shit real, bro. Like, you know, like fools were talking shit before the fight, knocks his ass out. Are you okay, bitch? You know, like it's funny to me. It's, I mean, I'm not saying everybody should do it, but it's funny. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm you, you just gotta take it with a grain. Like, if you don't take it seriously and be like, oh, you know, they're yeah, really what they're saying is really bad, or look at them always getting into a confrontation. That's just who they are, man. Like, personalities like that, they've been around in boxing all the time. Like, would you have liked Camacho then if you're if you're a fan back in the 80s and early 90s and the way he was always wiling out? Or how yeah, about half of these fools about, that these people are putting on a pedestal did the same shit? They just look past talk it. about people saying, "Oh, the Charlos are always so aggressive; they're always ready to start a fight." Then what about if you watch Larry Holmes in the late in the early '80s when he was heavyweight champion, taking swipes at Jerry Cooney every chance he got when he was having an interview with Howard Cosell or doing something like Holmes was a very angry individual. Man, he jumps off a car and drop kicked Trevor Burbank. All right, like you know, this is this has happened throughout history. Yeah. So, well, like, Jenny for yeah. It's- yeah, 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 yeah. Jenny from the thing. And all of a sudden you say Larry Holmes. Larry Holmes, kick me and punch me. Do, 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 do. Bow. Yeah, done, done, done. <laughs> and then yeah, Arsenio Hall, I'll, I'll say this before we get to our history part really, really quick. Um, Arsenio Hall sitting with Muhammad Ali on an episode of uh, on the show in the early 90s. And they're going through his, um, one of his books he wrote with Tom Hauser. And Arsenio and Ali got quiet for a moment. And Arsenio goes, is Larry Holmes mentioned in this book? And Ali kind of looks at him and goes, he was like, no, hold on. Let me ask you something really quick. He said, what's going on with Larry Holmes? He was like, no, I I really got to add the crowd starts laughing. They always laugh. He was like, what's wrong with him? He was like, Larry Holmes recently jumped off of a car after a boxing match recently. And now I heard he's singing. What's going on with Larry Holmes? (laughs) He's like, what's wrong? (laughs) And the crowd starts cracking up laughing, right? And um, Ali just kind of like went along with it, whispered something in his ear, like joking. And Arsenio was like, oh, okay, okay. Now that makes sense. What is but it? I just with... love that comment. He was like, now I heard he's singing. What's wrong yeah, with Yeah, what him? is it with former heavyweight champions and trying to sing? What is it with these guys? I don't know, man. Almost none of them can do it. Oh, Jesus. Dude, well. But speaking of, like you said, with Canelo, man, and 
and throughout history, there's been a lot of guys that have bitten off more than they can chew. You know, a lot of people chasing greatness. A lot of great fighters still ended up being Hall of Famers, still ended up as all-time greats. But inevitably, there's always one time that they try to climb the mountain too high and it becomes too much for them. So everybody's got limits. Like I said earlier, you know, every fighter has limits to how high they could climb or how far they can go in as far as competition. And mm -hmm. every fighter finds that out differently. Obviously, you know, some fighters are destined to always be top 50, you know, the world needs ditch diggers too. That's what they say, but it's, you know, not everybody, that's the reality of it is not everybody can be a champion. Not everybody can be the greatest, et cetera. And so everybody is destined to reach too far eventually you know, what's, what's going to be for you a classic case of a fighter just it's too much? Well, look at that we were talking about earlier. Um, and probably the OG of just, you know, climbing mountains and just being a badass about it. But the toy bulldog, Mickey Walker, one of my all-time favorites, just because, you know what? Yeah, I tell you right now, bro, in any, you know, in the 1920s, he wasn't on the par of Dempsey and Babe Ruth and others, like, but he was popular as shit, you know, and not only that, he was probably even more personable than all those guys, like, more relatable, like, more of a person you would find him at the bar and hang out with, like, Walker was that guy, he's just a cool-ass guy that was just ready to fight anybody, anytime, and he had a really fun style, and the challenges that he ended up taking as a person that was about my height, 5'7", or so, and with a wingspan of 67 inches, um, moved all the way up to heavyweight and had moderate success for a little while too, which was, you know, pretty fascinating to see before inevitably he ran into that wall and that wall was Max Schmeling. You know, right around all, I'll give a, a very brief background on Mickey Walker, but right around at the end of world war one, uh, just like a world war two, there were a number of young men who had been sent off to Europe and then at the end of World War I, they had started to come back, right? And so that's mm -hmm. exactly when Mickey Walker had, had started his career was when a lot of these men had started coming back from World War I. And in any case, uh, I guess just to give you kind of a, the time frame, he started as a not a very big welterweight either. Like you said, 5'7", five, 5'8"-ish, five, not real long arms. And he fought like a guy his size too. He fought uh, often kind of from a crouch. He threw a lot of like overhand rights and he used to dig inside, throw body punches. He was a, a swarmer type of fighter. And, you know, the uh, welterweight won the welterweight title from, I want to say it was Jack Britton, I think. And then, uh, yeah, Wanda, yeah, Jack Britton. Yep. Wanda, Lost to Pete Latso. Loses it to Pete Latso, moves up to middleweight and, uh, convinces Tiger, uh, Flowers supposedly doc kearns mickey walker's manager convinced tiger flowers manager that mickey walker was sick and injured and was not going to put up much of a fight if they gave him a shot at the middleweight title and so they did he was not sick not injured and wound up shading the fight taking the middleweight title and becoming middleweight that was champion. really controversial too i wish it was, was that fight but from all newspaper accounts flowers kind of got robbed yeah, it was it was a fairly controversial decision, but Mickey Walker was by far the more popular fighter, and oh. you know he had a lot of people behind him. And on top of that, uh, if you read his book, which I'll kind of read from in a moment, he did have a lot of funky connections. So it, it's not really that surprising that he would have gotten a close fight like that. 
but um, after, you know, so he, through going through the middleweight championship and kind of making a handful of defenses and wind up I think losing the title to without looking, I want to say Dave shade. Um, not even positive. I'd have to look again, but regardless point is after losing the middleweight title, he moves up and goes to heavyweight figuring he can take on a number of the heavyweights, but also <laughs> he was a drinker. He's a little bit of a drinker. In fact, he was a lot of a drinker. Mickey Walker, of course he drank. <laughs> Mickey Walker was a lot of a drinker. And so was Jack Kearns, Doc Kearns, his uh, manager. They were close friends for a number of years and drinking buddies. They both said, said as much, you know, in their, in their memoirs. Doc Kearns had some of his memoirs published later on. And Mickey Walker wrote an autobiography. And they both basically admitted, yeah, we used to just fucking go everywhere and get drunk. You know, sometimes I'd fight. That's that's pretty much the story of his autobiography. It's pretty amazing. And so when you consider that that's pretty much how Mickey Walker moved from middleweight to heavyweight, and granted, he was not a big heavyweight either. He was still coming in at like 170. He was not, he was fighting dudes at like, you know, he was not big at all. But it was, it's just amazing for him to go from welterweight all the way to heavyweight, because that's the kind of thing that would not that idea is not gonna happen today. Yeah, yeah, totally. He just you know, like not only like you said, when he was moving up at the the middleweight, um, he he was a successful middleweight champion, and he became one of the most popular fighters of his era. Uh, one of those guys that again he would probably transcend any era in terms of popularity because of his style, his personality outside of the ring, how um just his overall demeanor. Like he was just a guy like an everybody guy that everybody could relate to him. You wanted to be around him. He just seemed like a really popular, fun person. Women would gravitate toward him. Guys would want to you know buy him a drink, and he would definitely accept it. And, you know, there was an off chance that you'd just probably see him at a bar fight and flatten somebody just because someone would want to test out the champ. But, like, Walker was just, like, one of those people that you didn't feel like, you know, he was above you, that you couldn't really reach him. He would just, you know, he was, like, he was, he was one of yours. And he had that type of style, like you said. He was just very explosive in the ring. He wasn't trying to be a fancy damn or try to box you. He came out there and he absolutely slugged. And he wasn't afraid to fight anybody. He was looking for the top challengers. So when he moved to heavyweight and the guys that he was fighting, he was fighting some legit big ass, tall ass, big monsters of the time. Jack Sharkey, uh, for instance, um, future heavyweight champion, a guy that, you know, had a lot of issues here and there going on with his career, but generally considered one of the best um, technicians of his era. Um, Walker was dwarfed by him. And Walker fought into a draw in a fight that a lot of people thought that Walker probably edged it. Not so much because they were just awed at what he was able to accomplish, but for what actually happened in the, in the action. Sharky was pushed back and Walker was pushing the action. Like it was, you know, a fight that Walker probably won and won. Um, Bearcat Wright, a guy that we brought up in a past episodes, in a past episode before, another monstrous fighter of his time. Walker was able to fight him and beat him. Like, when Walker took this excursion to heavyweight, it wasn't like he was just kind of dipping his toes to it. He went full on fighting the toughest guys of his era and the top contenders in the, you know, hopes that he was going to be able to, um, excuse me, become champion one day. And at that point too, when Walker really made that excursion to the heavyweight division, the division was kind of wide open at that point. Like I said, there was Sharky, there was Max Schmeling, Gene Tunney had recently retired. You know, there was kind of a scrum to see who was going to become champion. There was top guys over there, but, it wasn't really a consensus top heavyweight. Walker was going to say, you know what, I'm trying to, uh, Walker tried to become that guy. Yeah, he, uh, 
so he says in his and there were some newspaper uh articles around this time to bear that out but he says in his, in his autobiography that after um after the first fight after the first tunny fight that when they were looking for opponents for jack dempsey that they had considered mickey walker and that mickey walker had gotten the call to face jack dempsey really? and that yeah but that i mean there were there would have been a lot of hang-ups there because Jack Dempsey was in litigation with Doc Kearns for yeah, that fight wouldn't have happened for a long time. Uh, Mickey Walker was close to Doc Kearns, and you know Doc Kearns had managed Jack Dempsey for a number of years, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, making that I don't even know how actually close it was to being made, but Mickey Walker says that they called him and they talked to him about it, um, and that he he said that he would have been willing to do it, and at that point. Mickey Walker could have maybe beat him, <laughs> but I mean yeah. Dempsey. When you're talking, if the like when Dempsey ended the fight in Sharky, Dempsey looked like absolute ass in that fight. He From did. the clips that have survived and the ones that we've been able to watch over the years, you know Sharky was really putting it on him until Dempsey hit him low. Sharky, you know, complained and Dempsey obviously landed the bomb that flattened him. So um, yeah, it's what do you want me to do? Because... Write him a letter? Yeah, right. <laughs> and um. Well, like you said, man, Walker was having success against heavyweights. Not so much, too, because, like, he was he was very, like, he was active. He was active on those dudes, you know? He would move in. He was just very, very quick and, like, well, quicker compared to those heavyweights. And, like, swarming him and doing his style, he wasn't afraid. And a lot of those guys of the era, they were very slow of foot. They didn't throw a lot of combination. If you watch a lot of those fights, they're more clinchy still of the olden times as opposed to, like, um, when Joe Lewis came around instead of really throwing a combination and knocking the absolute shit out of a lot of these dudes. But like, yeah, man, Walker, to his credit, was able to have some, you know, moderate success against these guys and became a bigger star because of it. Because who wouldn't want to watch a fight between a guy who was my height, who's kind of who looks a little pudgy, fighting a dude four to six inches taller than him or whatever it was, three to you know, three to five inches taller or so, and just going to toe toe to toe with him. Like it's fascinating to see. And Walker was that guy that wasn't going to be afraid of it either. Like he took these challenges and, um, you know, wasn't, he, like I said, he didn't dip his toes into the, like the beginning of the division. Like he was fighting very top contenders, like all the top guys of that era, Walker was going toe to toe with them. Well, and, and it's, a, it's amazing that he even did it. Cause now of course it, it's not to say that there are welterweights and middle, middleweights all over the world where people are talking about, they can go to heavyweight, but even back then, uh, it was super rare for completely for, any, for anybody. Was, I mean, this was kind of like when you think about it, like Fitzsimmons, for in, for instance, was like one of the first like weight jumpers. All right, yep. and uh, you you can you know you would agree with that. But yep, totally. What Walker was doing was like even more unheard of because I mean Sam Langford to a degree did something like that as he moved from like lightweight all the way to heavyweight and such. But like Walker even had more notoriety as being champion and more popularity at that moment. And like the way he was doing it, just jumping all the way up there after from middleweight going all the way up and fighting the biggest guys in the big, even guys bigger than Langford's era, you know, as a, with the exception of maybe Fred Fulton and a couple of others um, was like huge. And especially for the times too, when Walker's popularity, everybody's just like, Oh my God, Mickey Walker's fighting a heavyweight. Now we got to watch this shit. Like totally. If this, if Mickey Walker as a former middleweight champion moving up to fight Jack Sharkey, and this was in this type of era, everybody on boxing Twitter would be going gaga about it because that would be like a big event, you know? 
Well, it, it's imagine Canelo moving up to exactly fight that would be like Canelo moving up and fighting the top I mean, heavyweight. You know, that it's would really be like Canelo moving up to fight in comparison Joshua Fury, I guess, because Sharky was almost at that you know comparative levels, right? It's, in terms yeah, it's of who really was the not man that far off, dude. Yeah, yes. Yeah. In terms of who was the man at that time, Sharky was close to being the man. Sharky and Schmeller were kind of like the two guys at the very top, you know. So yeah, there was it was. Uh... In the, in the press, there was a lot of criticism about the heavyweight division, especially because it's like, you know, Gene Tunney was not popular. And he wasn't... He was a bookworm. <laughs> yeah, he didn't have a lot of swagger. He wasn't, he wasn't Dempsey, yeah. He didn't have a lot of swagger. He wasn't a big talker. He was a nice guy, but he wasn't as nearly as personable as Dempsey was. Dempsey was a hero. Everybody loved Dempsey. He's kind of like what Larry Holmes was after Post Ali. When you have, exactly. a, when you have a person that everybody Anytime. adores, and you have to like come right after that, you're inevitably going to be in their shadow. Yeah, like it's and, just there's nothing you can do about and it. And you almost never compare well, at least not as for, not at first. You know, history almost always remembers these fighters better than at the time, mm -hmm. but at the time when you're fighting in that fighter who just left their shadow, you know, you, you're shit, you know, you can't do it. And so a lot of these fighters who were coming up at heavyweight and the, and the titles getting kind of passed around, you know, Max Schmeling winds up winning the heavyweight championship. And I know I'm kind of jumping around time-wise, but just to illustrate how writers and the public felt about the heavyweight division at this time, when Max Schmeling wins the heavyweight title on a DQ for the first time in history, mm -hmm. people hated that shit. You know, people oh, talked I a lot of trash, awesome. even though well, you, you see know, Schmeling being picked. No one in no one in boxing history at that point ever seen a fighter win a championship being carried back to his corner, holding his groin and just looking in agony while his while his manager is crying foul and fix. You know, and all this yeah, and, and supposedly afterward they showed the cup and it was a, like a steel cup that had been like it was dented. dented right? Yeah, and I mean. Totally. If that's legit, then holy shit, give this man a pension like right now. <laughs> but I mean, anyway. I mean, but that's the thing too. And also, I people think people hated taking the context that like Schmeling not being American, a lot of people also were kind of like, too. Hey, fuck that, you know, that yada, too. Yeah, yada, yada. But, yeah. Um, well, in the in the wake of World War One and then leading into World War Two, shit got testy. You know, Germans very, were not very. well received, and so it. Yeah, like the, this, this combination of things, the public was not keen on what was happening in the heavyweight division. So to see someone like Mickey Walker step in and be like, hey, I got this. You know, people, I, I would imagine people would have been like, fucking, yeah, you know, fist bumping, mm -hmm. let's get this shit. Mickey, come on. But there's only so far that this man can go. He gets a draw with Jack, with uh, Jack Sharkey. Right. And there were, like you said, Paulino Uskudun, who was kind of rising in popularity during that time, another foreign uh, heavyweight who was an attraction, but also a pretty good fighter, somewhat he underrated. Did, man. He was the one that finished Harry Wills' uh, run. Yep. Somewhat underrated historically. Um, yeah, he is. A, a very interesting backstory, too. But uh, Mickey Walker faces Paulino Uskudun, who was a decent sized heavyweight. Uh, I mean, gosh, who else? Uh, Paul Swiderski, a decent-sized heavyweight, but not huge. Did, Eric he, fight Wright. did he fight Kingfish Le uh, Levinsky? Um, yes, he did. Uh, I don't think he was real big, though. He was kind of like a big, light heavyweight. Yeah, no, he wasn't a big guy, but, I mean, he was a tough guy of the era. But he, yes, yes, he, yeah, he was somebody who would go rounds with damn near anybody. And, yeah, he, so, in any ways, he, he fought a number of heavyweights, not just some, just, scrubs or whatever but guys who were either contenders 
or just outside of contendership. But eventually he was going to run into somebody. And Max Schmeling was the dude that he ran into in 1932 in September. Uh, you know, I guess that's the kind of, it's not the happy ending everybody wants, but Madison Square Garden, you know, Mickey Walker, according to the fight reports, um, was doing really, really well early in the fight through about four or five rounds was actually starting to beat Max Schmeling up. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in the seventh round got cut really badly near one of his eyes and his other eye started to close. And he said that because of that, that he just couldn't see shit in the following round. He just got the crap kicked out of him. And Max Schmeling, while not a very big heavyweight, if he could do one thing, was he, he could, could punch. punch like a mule, dude. His he right punch. hand was, yes. He had an absolute hammer of a right hand. So, yeah, and not a huge guy. Sharky and a lot of guys of that era. Not a huge guy, but he could punch. And yeah, he, he could swat. I waited to walk up from there, man. Yeah. That, the fight is, that fight was, that is a fight that was filmed and, you know, there's film of it. It's not like, you know, really grainy or anything. You can see what the hell is happening and Walker gets his ass kicked near the end. Yeah, he's he starts taking big right hands, really. I mean, the same right hands that put Joe Lewis away. It's the totally. same shit, dude. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, the same right hands that took Joe Lewis right off his pedestal. I'm going to read real quick. Um, you know, I guess just fast forward through this shit if you don't want it, people. But I just thought it was a funny story leading up, uh, Mickey Walker leading up to the smelling fight. He talks about what happened. So uh, right uh, not too long before the smelling fight, he fought Paulino Uskudun, which who, had I, who I had talked about. And he says, after the Uskudun fight, I didn't let myself get too much out of condition for I knew I had to be sharp for my fight with Schmeling in late September. At 31, it is hard to get back into fighting condition after you let yourself go. Don't I know it? I trained hard, and a, and a week before the fight, I was down to 158 pounds, my best fighting weight. Kearns thought I was too sharp and feared I'd be stale by fight time, so he ordered me to take a day off from training grind at Madame Bay's. Madame Bay's, of course, being a very famous training ground at, uh, during this time period run by the famous Madame Bay. Go anywhere, do anything, he advised. I don't care what you do as long as you don't work. Relax, have some fun, even take a few beers. It'll do you good. You're too keyed up. I don't care if you put some pounds back. You still got a week to, week to get them off again. I hung around the camp all morning doing nothing. I became bored and suggested to Kearns we play around a golf at a nearby course. He thought it was a good idea. Since Kearns had said I would be all, uh, be all right for me to have a few, I figured I might as well make the, the most of it. No beer, though. Instead, I had a case of champagne delivered to the camp, and we took it to the golf course. I had my caddy. Right. Sounds like what I like. <laughs> I had my caddy carry the basket of champagne with my clubs. Doc and I played 18 holes. Before it was over, I not only carried a few more pounds, but a pretty good load. Near the end of the match, I was swinging at two golf balls. We managed to finish without incident, however. If you call losing a dozen golf balls and almost sculling a caddy trivial, on the way to the car, Kearns insisted on taking the wheel, claiming I was in no condition to drive. You're drunker than I am, I told him. Why the condition you're in, you couldn't drive a baby carriage. Doc was insulted. We were in the parking lot, and he began walking along the cracks in the concrete, trying to demonstrate his ability to walk a straight line. Of course, I had to show that I could do it, too. This led to another argument. Kearns claimed I was weaving from side to side, and I yelled back that I was doing better than he was. Kearns pointed to a picket fence at the far end of the parking lot. It was about four feet high with each board pointed to the top. See that fence? Doc said, I'll bet you I can jump over it. 
Without waiting to see whether or not I'd take him up on it, Doc made a run for the fence and cleared it with room to spare. Naturally, I couldn't let him get away with that. Anything Doc could do, I could do better. I took a running start and made my leap using a belly roll as I had seen in some of the high jumpers do. I made it all right, but in the act of going over, one of the pointed uprights scraped my forehead and opened a huge gash over my left eye. I bled like a stuck pig. My cut was so bad, the fight had to be postponed two weeks. I was disappointed. I trained hard to get into top shape, and the prospect of three more tough weeks of conditioning did not appeal to me. I'd reached a peak, and I knew that it would be impossible for me to retain that peak. Sure enough, three weeks later, you wouldn't have re recognized me as the same man. I was a fat and out of shape. I just neglected training altogether. I came into the ring against Max Schmeling, weighing 174 pounds, my heaviest ever. I'd gained 16 pounds, mostly around the middle. This should give a clear indication of how quickly I ballooned in those days when I let myself go. Nobody picks up pounds as quickly as I do, even now. I'm not trying to take anything away from Schmeling. Max deserves his reputation. He might have beaten me even if I were in good shape, but certainly in my condition, I was no match for him. The fight was held in the old Madison Square Garden Bowl in Long Island City through the first seven rounds. It was close. Blah, blah, blah. He pretty much just describes the fight. Uh, but going on real quick, the best description of the fight was written by Paul Gallico in the New York Daily News. In case you missed the eighth and last round of the fight in Long Island City last night between Mickey Walker and Max Schmeling, you might run down to the slaughterhouse on First Avenue and 44th Street and watch them dress beef. If you want to know what it was like, it was like the slaughtering of an ox, a desperate little ox. Once Herr Schmeling, the German butcher who appeared to be fixing up a side of beef for the trade, remembered who he was and where he was, that he had human attributes, and signaled to the referee that he had thought the beef was well-dressed, and would would he not end this horrid, bloody, and human dream? The referee, however, was for more slaughter. So, Damn. yeah, I mean, there was. It's actually a really fun to me. Uh, Mickey Walker and Jack Dempsey's autobiographies are both really easy reads and fun reads if you can find them for fairly cheap and pick them up, because they're just you know, they're two guys talking super matter of factly about uh, careers during mm -hmm. an era or eras that are really interesting and fun to read about and have just tons of recognizable characters and they're also full of just debauchery and drunken bullshit so mm -hmm. i mean it's it's great but uh supposedly according to mickey walker he gashes his forehead jumping over a fence and got fat because he couldn't train and was drinking Again, that's why he'd be popular because, like, again, he's just never man that would get into random stuff like that that people can kind of relate to and just get excited about. And, you know, coincidentally, Canelo also weighed 174 pounds. So I'm just saying, bro, take this into consideration. <laughs> totally, totally. Nah, that's a, that's a really good one, though. Um, and that's one that I think a lot of people probably wouldn't think to bring up if they were doing the, you know, bit off more than they, more than they could chew yeah, yeah, yeah. discussion. Um, I'm going to go a little bit more recent, far more recent, actually, and probably one that, again, I think people probably would not bring up. And although it was not, it was technically a win. It was a fight he should have lost. And that was Oscar De La Hoya versus Felix Sturm. Good call. Good one. Dude, I, I think that pretty much everyone. I didn't even he, think about that, but that's a good pull. I think pretty much everyone thought that he lost that fight. Um, I mean, I fuck, I sure did. He got dominated. He totally lost jab. that fight. Yeah, he got dominated with Sturm's jab. Um, you know, this is one of those times I know 
people aren't going to fucking believe it and shit. But I did say before the fight, because I was able to actually get three Felix Sturm fights and they were surprisingly like pristine fucking condition. I don't know what it was about. Like, I don't know. In that era, that's actually pretty rare because I don't know if it was YouTube wasn't around or anything like that. All the time. It was like European fights. I don't know if it was like the encoding they used or what, but fights from Japan and fights from Germany, they were always like super good quality when we got them. And anyway, it was weird, but I was able to see three Felix Sturm fights. And I remember watching him and thinking like, he's not super good, but this guy's kind of got like a pesky style. Like he might give Oscar some shit, you know? And sure enough, sure fucking enough. And Oscar was like pudgy in that fight. He just was out of it. And um, I don't know if he thought he was going to walk through Sturm or whatever it was. But like you said, man, well, again, he put on the fight of his career, but he didn't really put it on, I guess, like Bevel did to convince people. And not only that, too, as big as Canelo is, Oscar was even harder to win a decision against, depending on who it was and who was involved in the fight. Well, and especially considering you know if you if you look at that fight dude like i mean i i'm not gonna lie i have i don't know that i've rewatched it at all but i want to say that i scored it at the time like nine three ten two you know i mean it was it was like a a fairly dominant fight and oscar wound up getting that fight you know they tried to rob dimitri bevel but they straight up robbed felix sturm and and off after that i remember felix sturm doing a couple interviews too where he was just like fuck this you know like i'm not coming back to the u.s why would i come back to the u.s like i beat this dude like they do this shit here fuck that which was funny a lot of those guys when they come to the u.s you know which uh, is funny because the narrative is that they fuck you in germany u.s when the u.s guys go to germany or yeah and it's like nah dude they can't come here it goes both ways, man. Everyone gets screwed either way. That's yeah. true, but people are just inept either way is the problem. Totally. But, it's inept judging, absolutely. Yeah, but um, was, no, that's a really, really good pull, man, because that was one of those fights that, like, Oscar clearly lost that, but that was on the double. That was, like, that weird, like, paper. That was that weird double header that instead yeah. of putting it on HBO, like it would have been in the 90s, This for, like, the first time they decided to take something like this and put it on pay-per-view. Two fights that you most people thought the outcomes were already predetermined. Well, the Oscar one kind of was after what happened, but like Hopkins fought Robert Allen. Yeah. And God, that was, that was so rough too. (laughs) And think about that fight, like Robert Allen and Hopkins, the first time they fought that obviously warranted a rematch because Will, you know, Will Smith, excuse me, Mills Lane (laughs) completely (laughs) shoved. Yeah. I mean, Um, Will Smith's getting kind of violent these days too. (laughs) It's true. I don't even know why I just I was thinking that. But anyways, Mills Lane completely shoves Hopkins out of the ring. But that's what everyone remembers from that fight. But if you remember, too, like, before that happened, Robert Island was giving Hopkins a lot of fits early on for, what was it, like, three rounds or whatever the fight land, like um, lasted for? Yeah, he was, a, he was a really awkward guy to fight. He was, and Hopkins was struggling with that style. And, and Robert Island was a number one contender and, like, a deserving number one contender at that time. And because of the ending that Allen was kind of controlling the fight before, you know, the unfortunate ending of Mills Lane power shoving Hopkins out of the ring. Um, that, you know, that obviously called for a rematch, but when they had a rematch and that was a fight that a lot of people were interested in, including myself as a young fan, Hopkins absolutely thrashed him. Like it wasn't even competitive. Allen got dropped multiple times, ended up getting stopped. It wasn't competitive. Hopkins clearly asserted his dominance. So 
for Allen to, to scurry himself up to becoming a number one mandatory challenger again, what was this for the IBF title, I think, or something? I'm pretty sure, yeah. And and that shows you again, man, like the IBF, for all the times they follow their rules and everyone talks about, well, at least they follow the rules, whatever. Look at their mandatory challengers. They're some of the absolute sackiest of the shits, man. They're like, they suck. <laughs> and Allen was no exception. Like, he really didn't deserve to be a number one contender in that. Like, what had he done? Beat Tito Mendoza? So, um, you know, so that was like, okay, let's put this on pay-per-view. Hopkins and Oscar are going to fight each other. So they're just going to, you know, take care of their mandatory challengers. Let's force feed the fans that, to pay 60 bucks for this. And um, I guess a lot of people did. But Hopkins got through his, and you know, like you said, that was a really sloppy fight that nobody wished that watched it, wished that they had ever have to see it again. And Oscar arguably lost that fight, which a lot of people did think he did lose that fight. And um, that did build Sturm's um, credibility, though, in America. Like, again, like you said, he wasn't willing to come back here or really do anything, but it did keep his name out there. And he kept his name at the top of the division where when people were talking about, like, quality champions, Sturm was never looked upon as, like, a European unknown. He was known as a guy that was, like, relatively respected. Yeah, and he was actually fairly popular in, I want to say he was Hungarian, but he yeah. was, I think, Hungarian, but he fought out of Germany. A lot, of, like a lot of those European guys, like Daruz Mikachewski wasn't actually German. I think he was Polish. He was Polish, yeah. yeah. They called him the Polish Tiger. Exactly. So, yeah, you know, for example, yeah, yeah. There was, there was actually, yeah, Arthur Abraham, Armenian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Armenian. Uh, yeah. You know, um, uh, what's her name? Um, oh, gosh, the who's he contacting you? Uh, Cecilia uh, Recus. Yeah. yeah, she's Colombian. And Juan she, Carlos Gomez was Cuban. <laughs> yeah, there a number of these yeah. fighters for whatever reason were able to to find a huge audience. We were just talking about this in a in the group DM with uh with Corey Urban the other day about a big blind spot in the last maybe 20 to 25 years for how the popularity of a number of German fighters, the totally. Klitschko brothers, Ukrainian, super huge in Germany. So yeah. I mean, it's uh for whatever reason, you know, this is this market was was just absolutely massive kudos to universal yeah yeah uh, this market was just absolutely huge and so anyway yeah it's uh excuse me um gosh where I'm, where did we we got too far off the the topic i i can't circle back hell oh, there's no, i'm help. sorry man <laughs> oscar against uh, felix sturm yeah, felix sturm i, I got <laughs> well, i was no, out in the weeds his popularity too but i'll say this too man he was a good looking guy for his time in the early to, um when he came out i think he was a model in uh out there wasn't mm-hmm. he probably well like this is overall thing and then he ends up losing surprisingly shockingly in fact to javier castillejo yeah which I don't That's think anybody expected. And that did drop the stock a little bit. No. And then, um, especially because Oscar De La Hoya had already defeated Javier Castillejo. Yeah. And- like he was like Castillejo was known as like a respectable guy, but not like a person when he got to like the really top level, you're supposed to do anything with it. Yeah. He was like upper level European, many people yeah, thought. Totally. Like mm-hmm. they were like, ah, you know, he's like the Spanish champion. He's probably not going to get much farther than that. But he was massive. He was actually really popular in Spain. And at that point, People thought like, oh, well, his career's done. Like he's on the the down slide of his career, and it's not going to happen. But he hurt Felix Sturm, and that was like the end of that. And as Kiko Martinez, after he um, scored the major upset, who did who was it? Kaya Fai knocked out. Oh, uh, um, not Kaya. Uh, 
it was like two months ago for crying out loud freaking um uh bro now i'm about to have to look this up because i can't let this slide. <laughs> i probably got the names wrong so i apologize but yeah i now i have to look this up because i can't let this slide but um no uh he kid galahad and then he kid just galahad, lost to josh warrington yeah for yeah, some reason kid i was galahad. gonna say warrington but so yeah. <clears throat> so kid galahad and then after and i remember the interview though and they were like do you feel now that you might be spain's best fighter ever and he said no 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 javier castillo still is they love that guy he's yeah and he said time... it like in a way that like he admires the shit out of him and i was like all right that was cool but that was a good pull, man. That was that was a really that was one that I didn't actually didn't even think of at all because that was such a fight that's kind of been forgotten and rarely gets brought up today. And um it's it's a fight that are that, that wasn't arguable. Oscar definitely lost that fight. He got saved by the judge that night because they wanted to cash in with the Hopkins fight. Which was a whole other well, I wouldn't cut a what I'm not gonna call that a fiasco, but like a whole other thing in itself. That like if Twitter again, if Twitter was around today, back then, yeah, it would have been conspiracy theory oh, city, totally, bro. man. Especially with the way that body shot was, and it looked like it wasn't much of a punch, and how Oscar, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Boxing Twitter would have been in an uproar, but Twitter didn't come out for what, like about four or five years after that. Or so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude. I yeah, I knew. I mean, I knew that that outcome was going to happen. Not quite like that, but I knew that I knew Oscar that Hopkins was going to wash his ass. But yeah, I mean, I just I remember watching that Sturm fight, and I remember <laughs> that fucking guy. I I just remember being like, I wasn't pissed, but just feeling like, what? That mm-hmm. was so clear. How are they about to do that? Well, they did it. They totally did it. But yeah, I think that that was definitely a clear case of a. Uh, biting off more than he could chew he went up a little bit too far to middleweight and felix sturm who was a very good sized middleweight a solid sized middleweight denied his ass and said nope well here's one just because i think we should, i wanted to bring it up because it's the 30th anniversary today um when melger taylor he didn't really move up so to speak there was a catch weight here but when he fought terry norris for the uh, junior middleweight title definitely bit off more than he could chew and i could well and i mean honestly you know what was that 140 pounds where he lost to chavez so exactly i think the catch weight for this one was what around like 149 or so yeah so he clearly had gone up yeah i think norris qualifies norris norris went down a few pounds himself but the size difference was noticeable there and this was a big fight I watched it recently on YouTube again, just revisiting it, like with all the whole pre-fight and everything. Because, uh, you know, again, our boy Jay Seclow is always posting up like the whole whole shows of everything. So it's it's interesting. You know, it's the early 90s, my favorite era. You got Norris with the high top when he was shaving crazy stuff in his hair. Like, I think this fight, he had knockout shaved into it. Meldrick Taylor had to have the, had the whole... May or may not have had the 45 degree, you know. Mm-hmm. They both had the Gunby slope going on. <laughs> yep. Definitely um, definitely a status symbol of the early 90s. And you know, it, was, it was billed as a big fight. It was billed as a super fight at that point. Military Taylor had lost to Chavez, as you just said, but he was still looked upon as one of the top fighters in the world. And especially considering what happened in the Chavez fight, like, you know, the controversy surrounding it and all that other stuff. So uh, Military Taylor was still looked upon as the top guy. Plus, 
after he had lost to Chavez, he had moved up and beaten Aaron Davis, who was a respectable champion, yep. um, for the welterweight championship. So Taylor was still looked upon as, you know, as a top well, two. And Aaron Davis was still big from beating Breland, too. So yeah, like it was yeah, big, yeah. This wasn't, you know. People forget Taylor, about how good this looked at the time. Totally. For for Taylor, for Melcher Taylor to be able to move up and beat um and beat Aaron Davis after losing to Chavez the way he did was pretty impressive. And like you said, Davis was coming off of one of the best fights of the year in, uh, in beating Breland. This because that fight happened in 1991. Oh, so such a Davis rough knockout, too. Yeah. So, yeah, Taylor was, you know, was on a little on a little bit of momentum. They had a crossroads. Terry Norris was looking for a big fight. Sure, he had beaten Sugar and Leonard, but Leonard was already past it, and, like, there was an asterisk to that fight. Same thing with other wastelands of um, guys that he fought from the 80s, Donald Curry, um, John Mugabe. Like, those were from a past era, you know. Terry Norris was still looking for a marquee fight. He was calling out everybody, but no one was really willing to fight him because he was a dangerous, dangerous proposition. He was a guy that was perpetually angry. He had an incredible style, and he could box really well, but he was just, just trying to knock the living shit out of you. That's a, that was his whole thing. And um, he, he was tough to fight. A lot, a lot of guys, you know, most of the fight times when he was featured on HBO because Terry Norris was still featured on HBO before Don King defected to Showtime. And you saw the destruction that he was laying, man. Poor Brett Lally looked like he was just, you know, mugged in the alley after Terry Norris got done with him. Um Donald Curry was pummeled and knocked out by Norris. Like, Norris was beating the living hell out of guys at this point. Sugar Ray Leonard was knocked down twice, punched while he was down, just generally beaten up in, in, in a near-empty mass of square garden. Um, John Mugabe was laid out unconscious. Like, Norris was at his peak at this point. And when they fought, again, like, you know, this was one of those fights that, like, a lot of people were looking forward to, that there was a, that there was a catch weight, which was kind of uncommon at that point. Um, and that made it more intriguing. So with all that being said, you know, it actually was an exciting fight for a few rounds. What'd you think? I agree, dude, because they're both the kind of fighters who had uh, really, really good hand speed. Uh, both of them were very offensive, you know, like they, they like to throw in combination. Yep. Meldrick Taylor, you know, Olympian, even with that loss though, to, to Chavez, people used, like you said, there was controversial, he was still a star going into that fight. And then coming out of that fight, obviously some of the star, you know, luster had been knocked off, but he, I don't think he was definitely thought of as damaged goods or anything like that. No, no, I mean, no. He's still that pretty point, good. Yeah, there was still, there was still a lot of hope for him. I mean, like we it, said, with the Davis fight, yeah, a lot of people still thought that he was, you know, had a lot going on for him. It, it took a while for that to kind of catch up with him, it, it seemed. But then after the rematch, obviously, it was kind of just like a, a real quick slide. Well, well, not only that, too. Like, it was after, like, he, he, he won the Davis fight comprehensively. But after this fight, you started seeing a slide because as we're about to get to, man, like, <clears throat> excuse me, for the first round or two, um, Taylor was looking really good. Like Taylor's hand speed, and Taylor had some of the fastest hands you'd ever see. Yep. Comparable to probably, and a lot of people would hate me to say this, but like Melger Taylor probably had faster hands than Floyd Mayweather. Not to say he was a better fighter than Mayweather or as accurate, but when it just came to absolute speed, yeah, like, like one punch, I'd probably go with Floyd. But in yes. combination, Melger. In combination, sure. Melger Taylor was an absolute blur. Yeah. And to be honest, bro, I still haven't seen a guy that's just as crazy fast as Taylor was. Not to say all of us was, uh, not to say all of it was completely accurate. Some of it was kind of a flurry, wish wash, you know, some miss or whatever. But like, 
for just incredible speed, Melzer Taylor was hard to beat, man. He was just incredible. And Howard Davis, another one, guys like that. So, like, his speed, Norris was getting adjusted to it. He, he wasn't getting hurt, but Taylor was landing some beautiful shots, man. Three, four punch combinations, getting right in there. Blah, 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 blah. And he was staying in the pocket, and Norris – before he was able to get off, Taylor was already, because he had fast feet too, was able to get out of there. But Norris is a great fighter, as we've talked about. Norris is a legendary fighter, obviously, you know, Hall of Fame worthy and such. All it took was a couple of rounds for him to get adjusted to what he was working with. And once he got adjusted to it, you know, it was basically written up. Yeah, it basically at that point, it's it, you're lucky if you don't get knocked to the canvas and then hit twice while you're down. <laughs> I'm saying, man. And once Norris, like, if you're watching the fight, Taylor's still staying in the pocket. And he's like, you know, throwing a flurry. And, but Norris is like flurrying with him and then finishing him with like an overhand right or a hook. And those right overhand rights that Norris used to land, pop, like right on the top of your head, sometimes in the back of your head, or like around the hook was just landing, landing. And Taylor was getting visibly hurt because he was a smaller guy. Yep. Even though Norris dropped down in weight, he was still bigger and he still hit harder. And before you know it, Taylor, who always said that he was a Philadelphia fighter and Joe Frazier was his hero, and with all his boxing skills, he still wanted to be there and fight you and slug you. He was still staying in the pocket trying to slug it out with Norris, who was visibly just was not going to, you know, you're not going to win a slugging match with Norris. And then before you know it, Norris spiked him like a football. Yeah, dude, just absolutely brutal. And well, and I mean, it, I think that also the, the cumulative effect from like getting stopped by, Chavez but also getting like beaten up in that fight yeah. and then I mean the... yeah that was like he was already damaged goods after the Chavez yeah. fight as we all realized years later but he that still was, looked okay you know, it was just that like the the futility you know what I mean like trying to go punch for punch with Terry Norris and realizing he was just about as fast almost as fast but clearly more powerful it was like it was overwhelming you know and then finally it was just like he he just he couldn't you know he couldn't. Nah, man, and, and Norris ended up you know stomping him, and it's crazy to think Norris clamored for a big fight for years after that. Like, and I don't, I'm not sure if he ever really reached it. And I love Terry Norris, you know, like he wanted to fight with Whitaker. Hell, he wanted to fight with Chavez. He wanted to fight with anybody that was going to give him like that notoriety of being one of the absolute best. And what's kind of sad is that like, you know. After this fight with, with Melger Taylor, like, you know, he had a he, – he struggled for a bit because he had a hiccup with Simon Brown, which ended up being one of the, big, one of the, uh, one of the biggest upsets of the early 90s. Came back, scored a master class against Brown. But then uh, those years where he really could have maybe secured a big fight, it got screwed up because he got caught up in that stupid drama with Luis Santana with that wild, fascinating, stupid – trilogy that he ended up going with with yeah what a time waster absolutely man and it costs so much of it too when you think back on it because at that point when you really could have done something it was and by the time he got out of that stupid drama he was already past it a little bit we didn't know it yet but he was he was still very very active but like he was still kind of wasting time fighting guys like jorge luis vado and a washed vincent petway and nick rupa and stuff like that you know yeah and when it was finally time for him to get that big cash in fight, he's been around since the late eighties. You know what I mean? Norris with all the sparring he's done, everything else he's done, you know, all the other, you know, the fights he's taken, he's been a very active guy. 
he's still at the top of his level, but none of us realize he's actually washed now. And now all he needs is one more fight, and he's going to cash out against Oscar De La Hoya in, in millions in a fight that he's obviously deserved over these years, and he loses it because he's completely gone by that point. Yep. And it's sad to see, man, because I love Terry Norris. He, like I said, I grew up like adoring that dude. When I met him, I still like kind of looked at him in awe. Norris was my guy. And if you listen to Meldrick Taylor and you listen to Terry Norris in their interviews before that fight, and you hear how clear they sounded because everyone's like, oh, Norris always had a raspy voice or Norris, you know, ter- Mel- ter- no, 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 man, that's bullshit. Listen to how they talked before this fight. Both of them were as clear as can be. Both of them were very articulate and both of them were very smart. And yeah. you hear their interviews then and you hear how they talk today and it's absolutely tragic. I, I, I brought this up before. I don't remember what show, but I brought it up before. In the early 2000s, Golden Boy started having a bunch of shows in San Diego and when they had shows in San Diego, often Terry Norris would show up. And I remember meeting Terry Norris because I'd never met him before. I had, I saw him against um, Troy Waters on the yeah. Trinidad yeah. Uh, blocker, mm-hmm. super young at San Diego Sports Arena. That's but, awesome. But, but I'd never met him. And I met him, and it must have been, what, 2003, 2004? And even then his speech, like you could hear his speech. Like I was, and I remember kind of thinking like, holy shit, I could have sworn it was just a couple of years ago. You were just fighting so-and-so, you know? And so for me, I was just kind of like, I was a little shocked at how quickly it, it, it had eroded. But then I remember speaking to somebody in boxing, not too long after that, like a couple months after that. And I had mentioned that I'd met him and that his speech was bad. And they looked at me like, you're tripping. Like you're lying. I just, I heard him the other day and it's not bad. And I was thinking like, are we really telling lies about this? Holy shit, bro. He sounds awful. <laughs> and I mean, you know, not to, I'm not making fun. It's just, I was like, I, yeah, yeah. But yeah. And Meldrick Taylor, like the, um, the legendary nights that they did. And even then, gosh, that would have been what, 15, 18 years ago at this point. Well, it happened around 2002. So yeah, we're talking about, god well 20 years ago and and in that he sounded bad so i i can't they made it a point to make it sound like that because they were talking about they remember they cut to him how he was talking before the chavez fight and then they cut to how he talked at that point and you couldn't understand a word and that was like you said that was 20 years 20 years ago yeah and it's it's sad man like uh that's that's another example and another one you know um uh, to bring up really quickly, I guess, um, would be to bring back up to the big boys really quick. And one of the greatest late heavyweights of all time, one of my favorites too, Bob Foster, and his excursions trying to move up the heavyweight, not once, but many times. <laughs> well, against multiple different people, you know. Yeah, that's right. Just one of those fighters who I guess like he had the frame because he was lanky enough. It's just yeah, like he had a Tommy Hearn frame against too, but like yeah, again, even for his era where heavyweights weren't huge compared to how they are now, they were big guys, but they weren't like big, big. Foster still was like frail compared to like a lot of those guys. Like early on in his career, when he first tried to make a you know make amends in the heavyweight division, um, he fought Doug Jones. I know he was a he was a substitute. Yep. And like a last minute substitute, but he still came in and Doug Jones ended up stopping him. Uh, Zora Foley stopped him. And then he, you know, he found like common Which I mean, like, like no shame. Doug Jones could Foley. really punch Doug Jones and, Zora and Zora Foley, Foley was a very good fighter. Guys. Yes, exactly. 
Doug Jones and Zora Foley were two top guys of the era and charter members of the custom auto tied up with somebody. So he can't fly. Can't, they can't fight Floyd Patterson club. Yeah, totally. Um, but like Foster found ground at light heavyweight. Totally. Like, you know, he was bigger than everyone else at that division. And by the time he poleaxed poor Dick Tiger, who another one who kind of just, you know, reached his climax when he fought Foster, um, he proved himself. You know what I mean? But Foster just poleaxing the rest of the division and being the king of that, he was getting a little antsy. And he, he admitted so as such in interviews and other times. Like, he wanted to test his waters a heavyweight again. The way he was beating everybody, like, and, and the, the lack of success that he had at heavyweight originally kind of, like, piqued his interest that he wanted to try himself. And that brought him to, first off, to fight Joe Frazier. Man almost lost his entire upper body fighting Joe <laughs> Fraser. My God. <laughs> I mean, you know, and bro, here's the thing. He actually hurt Frazier early on. He did land a couple of shots. <clears throat> well, and he's kind of like Tommy Hearns. He's got that kind of frame. I yeah. don't. And again, like I don't have that much fighting experience, but I have fought dudes who are like way taller and there's something about dudes who have those like nine foot long arms that like they throw a punch. And by the time it hits you, it feels like that shit's got an anvil on it. Like it feels totally. like that shit came from Kentucky and that shit just pecked, picked up momentum by the time it hit you. <laughs> and it's the same type of shit, dude. Like, it's like, I, I remember, um, I want, I, dude, I want to say that it was, uh, might've been George Foreman. But somebody who was a commentating on HBO used to always say, the longer a punch goes, the more it's going to hurt you. Or like the farther a punch travels, the more it's going to hurt you, which I don't think it quite works that way per se. But it was just something about those lanky guys, the Hearnses, the Bob Fosters that like, God damn, just don't let them don't let them get their paws on you. And Bob Foster had that kind of frame and that kind of power that I guess just carried up. It was just that, number one, the fighters he was fighting when he did move up were good, not his fault. And number yeah. two, they had enough power and enough you know, skill that it was just that raw power that Foster had wasn't, that alone was not going to be enough. It wasn't and like again, he could like, It wasn't like Foster, he had commendable efforts. Like I said, he hurt Fraser Fl early on, in that first, in, in, I think in round one, before Fraser actually poleaxed him in the second round. And when he moved up again in 1972 to fight Muhammad Ali in that um, double header where it was called the Soul Brothers against the Quarry Brothers. <laughs> yep. Uh, wait, no, no, excuse me. That definitely wasn't that. Um, no, no, that, that wasn't it because Bob Foster fought Mike Quarry and Ali fought Jerry Quarry in a rematch. Excuse me. Yeah. So that, <laughs> I fucked that up. Um, no, no, but I, I'm with you. I'm with no, you. No, no, no. It was, it, was it was around that time when Bob Foster, it was in Tahoe, mm. Nevada, and Mills Lane was the referee. And Bob Foster fought Muhammad Ali for the NABF Heavyweight Championship. And um, in that fight, too, Foster had success. Don't get me wrong. He cut Ali. That was the first time Ali was officially yep. caught in a fight. And Ali took a little bit of punishment. But Ali also dropped Foster, like, a dozen times, too. Like, like he got mad. Yeah. <laughs> and the way Foster would drop, like you said, he just crumbled, bro. It wasn't just, like, you know, a flash knockdown. He would just drop in heaps. That that um the Ali Foster fight dude has like honestly I've seen a lot of fight photos obviously and I know you have too yeah, yeah but yeah. that has some of the coolest fight photos from that fight 
especially oh, because there's overhead shots and then the color of the ring is that that blue that you don't mm-hmm, see mm-hmm. that often and i think that you don't see it as often now because it comes off looking really awful on tv like certain colors like you remember um one of the i can't remember which one i guess it would have been the first duran leonard fight they had the oh. green ring and it's like yeah, when yeah, you yeah. when you rewatch it it looks fucking awful like it's like you're like ah ah it's terrible and it's the same kind of but in the photos it looks beautiful there's really cool photos uh like uh, photos from the ali foster fight for whatever reason i love those photos but uh anyway back to the actual fights dude foster he was skilled he wasn't an unskilled guy at all it was just that his chin was kind of suspect he was he fought like he didn't give a shit that his chin was suspect like he wasn't trying to really. And he you wasn't know. built, man. He didn't have the weight to like really handle a major heavyweight puncher. And Foster came of that era too, I think. And you, I'm, I'm, I think you would agree with that. Where like they were transitioning to like the really bigger guys of that point. Yes. That like it was exceeding the size of him, even though he was a tall yeah. guy and lanky. Like he was bigger than Frazier height wise, but like just in terms of actual size, it was exceeding where he was at. Twenty years earlier heavyweights were more his size yes totally for sure like but then they had like the buster Mathis seniors the you know the uh even muhammad ali he was 6'3 215 and that was considered guys in general yeah Yeah, that was considered pretty big at the time but like foster would have totally struggled in terms of strength and size with guys like ron lyle ernie shavers um jeff merritt tiger williams any you know even uh joe bugner well, I'm not going to say Foster probably skill-wise Foster would be him, but just like size-wise, like guys like that just, you know. Yeah, they were just getting a little bit bigger. So, yeah, that totally makes sense. And, I mean, it's just he just didn't have the size to push those guys off. And I guess his power was just not quite enough to – I mean, at light heavyweight, he was knocking dudes clean the fuck out. Clean. Vince, uh, Vicente Rondon got, got it bad against the ropes. Like got How dare up he on become ropes. a secondary champion while Foster was champion? very very good fighter but actually got caught up on the ropes and just hammered absolutely yeah. hammered you know mike quarry we thought he was dead for a couple seconds dick tiger who was <laughs> one tiger of the most terrible obliterated in history and just got absolutely obliterated one left hook that took his head and knocked into the cheap seats of madison square garden yeah terrible so i mean you know i think that that says that that kind of just illustrates the point that we're making that it's just like there's a wall dude and bob mm-hmm. foster unfortunately found that wall against some really great <laughs> fighters you know no no he he totally did man and like i think he even admitted later on too like in different interviews and stuff like that he knew where he lasted and like he just came in one of those errors if he came in a different era even after that too were like some guys skill wise where even though they were bigger they were just so like awful skill wise that he could have exploited that he just came up he came of age where Again, he was come from the from the late 60s into the early 70s and the golden age of heavyweights. Um, he was a pro from the early 60s. Like there was just no way that he was going to be able to like make a make a big splash into the heavyweight division to have moderate success. And that's okay. Like Archie Moore, for instance, as arguably the greatest lay heavyweight um, lay heavyweight of all time, from, you know, from certain historians. When he moved to heavyweight, he had moderate success. He did have like. Even though he lost to Floyd Patterson and he lost to Rocky Marciano, he he did beat a lot of top contenders and was considered a top contender or if not the number one contender 
for a number of years. But again, sometimes it's too much of a leap. Like, yeah, you know. Well, and, and I think both of them just kind of put a, a final stamp on that point because both of them had so much success at light heavyweight. Both yeah. of them were truly great light, heavy, all-time great light heavyweights, but just could not crack that heavyweight code. And it's know? not even just all-time great, you know, all-time greats either. Like from that era, Joey Maxim moved up the heavyweight to try to, you know, and he lost comprehensively. Hell, even Bobo Olsen, of all people, um, at one point was like contemplating moving up the heavyweight to try to challenge for the crown. Like... Yeah, bald-ass Bobo Olsen would have gotten handled badly. Do you think, you know, whether it would have been Patterson, um, Marciano, or God forbid, Sonny Liston, what he would have done? <laughs> oof. Oof. God damn. Yeah, no, I mean, no, that would have been a bad idea. But I'm going to try to squeeze one in because I know there's one you More, wanted yeah. to talk about. And okay. I, I know we we do want to talk about that one, but there is one okay. I want to squeeze in before that because I thought it was a good one. We you just mentioned Ray Robinson. Well, you mentioned Bob Olson. Got can't mention Bob Olson without mentioning Ray Robinson, and then you also Absolutely. mentioned Joey Maxim. So that's got to be another instance of a fighter just going up a little too far, even though he came really close to pulling it off, but it was it was too hot. He was too big. He couldn't pull it off. Ray Robinson lost to Joey Maxim on a TKO because he just could not do it. At light the hottest nights in New York City. I mean, don't get me wrong. That shit is brutal, but Joey Maxim also fought in that heat. No, he did. He did. And, and Maxim always said throughout the years, what, do you think I fought in air conditioning? I'm sure. just saying. I'm just saying. But this was, and like, and to go to your point where and you- And I love Ray Robinson. Don't get me no, wrong. I do. Totally, so do I. But- to add to your point, you're totally right, Pat, because Ray Robinson had to exert a lot more energy than Joey Maxim had to do in that fight. Yes, Joey Maxim was losing the fight comprehensively. There's no denying that. Robinson was outboxing him. He wobbled him a couple of times. He was overall beating him. But to do that, he had to exert a lot of energy, a lot more than Joey Maxim had to because Maxim was the naturally bigger guy and he wasn't as active as Robinson would have been. So... Leaning on top of a person, kind of like Jack Johnson had Jess Willard leaning on him, like the Havana Heat and other times in history. Like, you know, a guy leaning on to you, all that stuff. What was the temperature in New York? It was over 100 degrees that, that night um, in Yankee Stadium. Yeah, it was like, in, yeah, it wound up getting like over 100 and it was pretty It was brutal. awful. It was like ridiculously bad to the point where around round 10 or so, Ruby Goldstein um, completely, you know, had to be taken out of the ring because he was out of it. You know, he's passed out. And, and New York heat is different than like Arizona heat. Yes, I can attest. I live in New York City. I can tell you that right now. New York heat is something different. Um, it's, yeah, shit is like oppressive. Oh, it's bad, bro. It's it's so just sticky and like, it's not dry heat at all. It's just very, very heavy in there. And uh, it, it's not fun, man. And with every, everything so condensed with the buildings and all this stuff and people right next to you, it's it's not a it's not a good thing. So combine that, the New York heat that's going on, it's like a heat wave, an unusual heat wave in New York going on. And combine that with all the ring lights and everything else going on above the ring over there. And you're looking at an absolute sauna. Like the ring, yeah. it had to have been a close to like 120, 130, maybe even close to 140, you know, in terms of how actually hot it was. Like it was disgustingly hot. To the point where there was no business do you have an actual prize fight between two guys going on in that type of heat. That should have been illegal. There's yeah. no reason, you know. At and this point in 1952, it wouldn't have been nearly as bad, I don't think, 
and well, and I think that also they probably just would have been in that window where it was right before TV really blew up. Yeah. But it was after like the advent or, or not the advent, but after um, seeing movies in theaters mm-hmm. had gotten mm-hmm. really popular. It was still popular enough, but not like a handful of years earlier. And so I think that uh, something a lot of people discounted was the lights that they had to use to light up the ring for TV because it wasn't just the spectators they had because TV rights and TV money had started to enter the equation. And so that means that they had to make sure this shit looked good on TV. And so the lights that they used to light up the ring on TV were fucking brutal, bro. Yeah, totally. And Robinson, the naturally smaller guy who has been exerting all kinds of crazy energy um, is, is being affected by this. And if you watch, for instance, like they talk about this, pretty thoroughly in the HBO documentary that they did in the late 90s on Shakira Robinson. Um, you, you see it. Like, he's winning the fight. He was like, you know, I'll box and max him, who was a very, very good fighter in his time, a Hall of Famer, and somewhat underrated today because of the era he competed in. But, like, you know, a very, very good guy. But Robinson was doing his business against him. Robinson, pound for pound, skill for skill, was above, you know, heads and shoulders above Maxim. But, again, like you said, like, Maxim is exerting his his weight on him, his energy. Robinson is like using so much punches, like he's throwing out there. Maxim can take it. Robinson's a naturally smaller guy. Like Maxim is a guy that went to distance with Ezra Charles, Archie Moore, and a host of other big guys. The only time he was ever knocked out was on a, was on a freak um, against uh, Curtis Hatchman Williams, not not Williams, um, Shepard. Excuse me, Curtis Hatchman Shepard. So. Maxim was not a guy that was going to get knocked out by anybody. He had a steel iron chin. And Robinson using all this, you know, exerting all this energy, this crazy heat. Of course, he's wilting, he's wilting, he's wilting. And I forgot what round it was, but it, it happened again years later when Meldrick Taylor against Chavez. Robinson, I believe, threw a punch, got wild, and fell to, you know, face first on the campus, correct? It was, I'm pretty sure it was the last round, the 13th yeah. round. Because he, yeah, he threw like a wild punch and like, like could like barely even get himself up off the floor and the way he was carried back and you see in the hbo documentary you see a zoomed in on him robinson is held on he's just he has nothing to him he's being dragged back by george gayford and his trainers like he is just you know a wet blanket it's it's scary to see because you know he's suffering from heat stroke and a bunch of other ailments at this point and um you know according to everybody and they weren't bullshit and he almost died after that fight like that was really bad. He was he was extremely sick. He you know suffered from major heat stroke. He had different like um, hives and lesions all over him. Like he was really messed up. High fevers. Like that was dangerous. That was really really bad. And he ended up retiring after he, that fight. He convinced him to retire for almost three years. Yeah, totally. It which which was you know roughly his prime. You know at least in yeah. terms of his age. And especially when you consider he came back and just tooled the middleweight championship a handful of times. So, I mean, you know, that it, it was a significant, uh, he obviously put his body through it that night. Yeah. Clearly. No, clearly. no, he, re- he really, really did, man. And um, it, it's crazy to see because if Robinson had a good chance, if he, if he had passed away that night, like the whole, history of boxing would have been changed today in terms of all kinds of stuff like it just would have been crazy 
you know? Yeah, no shit, dude. That's, well, happy for all. And, and according to his family, they said he was close to death. And I don't think they were fabricating that. I wouldn't, well, I mean, I wouldn't be that surprised, dude, because if you look at the way that Ray Robinson looked after that 13th round, yeah. extremely similar to how, like, I mean, just something that sticks with me about the Thrill in Manila is the way that right before Eddie Futch stops it, they're talking about in Muhammad Ali's corner, like, we're about to stop this shit. And he's yeah, looking, yeah, yeah. and he's going, like, looking around him, like, looking at Joe, like, Please, please fucking please. stop this, yeah. you know, stop this guy. So I don't have to fucking stop it in my own corner, you know? And it's like, I'm not saying Maxim looked that way, but just the way that Ray Robinson was so like, you know, totally. like laid out is the same way that both Ali and Frazier looked at the end of the thrill in Manila. Like they just didn't have anything. They had nothing physically left to give, Nothing, you know, absolutely nothing. Just it's amazing shit, you know, from a from a human perspective, and the fact that he was able to come that back. They, you know years. that a, that a person could push themselves to that type of limit. Yeah. To to get to them that like nothing. And he but, still came know, back. Last somebody. Hmm? And he still came back. He still came yeah. back and won the middleweight title, like you know, more than once. It's just amazing. I mean, he had to take a break for it, but yeah, like I mean, Robinson lasted up until around 1965 or so. So it's like it's incredible. Yeah, it's crazy shit. So. I thought that that was a pretty good classic. No, that was that was sure. definitely a good one too. And um, we don't. I'm not going to go into it, but because everybody knows the story, but you got to mention Alexis Arguello as well. You know, so. No, that's well. That's the one that I I figured you were going to want to talk about because it's serious. Oh well, yeah, totally yeah. too. Man. Arguello, like, Arguello was, yeah, a, a guy that one of my all time favorites. A lot of people's all time favorites. Um, and. Well, he was going for his first, uh, as to be the first person to win four titles in four different divisions, correct? Yeah. So he had, yeah, because he had featherweight, 130 pounds, 135, yeah. and was going for 140 with uh, Aaron Pryor. And and not only that, Arguello always prided himself on challenging the best in the divisions. Uh, he he beat Ruben Oliveras for his first championship. Lost to Ernesto Marcel, an incredibly criminally underrated champion. Um, in his first shot at a world championship. Um, Marcel should be in the Hall of Fame, but he's unfortunately not at the moment. Um, moving on, like when he moved up to junior lightweight, Alfredo Escalera, even though he should probably should have lost his fight with um, Tyro and Everett, was considered the man at 130. Arguello ended up beating him um, in a very brutal fight and then beat him in an equally brutal rematch. And then when he moved up to 135, same thing. He challenged Jim Watt for the championship. Jim Watt at that point was considered the man of the division, whether granted or not, but he had beaten Sean O'Grady, you know, he had, um, had developed himself as a very top champion, also scored an upset in a fight that a lot of people thought he would lose against Howard Davis. Like, Watt was an established champion. Instead of challenging a guy like um, Ernesto Espana or Hill McKenty, both credible fighters, but not on the level of, and the respectability of Watt at that point, you know, and Arguello beat him comprehensively, sent Watt into retirement. So, and if you look at, too, like, you know, the level of uh, title defenses he had made, like, Arguello had cleaned everybody out, man. All the guys at 130 who would end up having that round robin in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, like Cornelius Boza Edwards, Bazooka Lamon, um, Rolando Navarrete, uh, Bobby Chacon, Arguello beat all of them. And so, the inevitability was that he wanted to challenge for a fourth world championship. So when he was looking to move up to 140 at the junior welterweight division, who was he going to fight? Hilmer Kenty? Not, not, excuse me, not Hilmer Kenty. Um, 
Sal Mambe. Sal Mambe was a great, was a very, very competent fighter, a very, you know, a genius of a boxer himself, a very, very good fighter, but a guy that wasn't quite on the level of the guy he ended up challenging, who was Aaron Pryor. Aaron Pryor at that point, who had absolutely ravaged, you know, Antonio Cervantes, who was the long reigning junior welterweight champion, a guy who, you know, was like the king of the division, arguably the best of all time of that division at that point. And Pryor was just like a whirlwind. No one had really seen anything like them since the days of Henry Armstrong. He was being compared to Armstrong, just like a, you know, a crazy fighter. And so obviously, Argoya wanted to test him against, you know, test his skills against him to secure his fourth world title. And I think also the the contrast between them because um, yes, totally. not not only was Arguello going up to try to get a title in his fourth division, but he was he was uh, constantly portrayed as the gentleman fighter because he was he was uh, yeah. he was um, pretty much always respectful to opponents, wasn't talking shit before the fight, wasn't talking shit after the fight, was a uh, was humble in defeat, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. humble in victory. Um, you know, just the kind of guy that, you know, if you lost to him, it's like, well, I mean, at least I got to lose to that guy. You know, at least at least somebody like that could beat me. Well, Clement is loved to Rayman Sini and his dad doing all this other stuff. Like just a, and, a wonderful guy, you know, by all accounts. And yeah, bro, listen to this, man. Like, you know, I said the boxing's like not meant for the gentleman. Arguello was the exception for that. Everybody looked upon him, looked upon him as just being like that really nice guy. And the most glaring thing was before the fight. When the pre-fight introductions, Mister Alexis Arguello, and when they introduced Aaron Pryor, Aaron Pryor, <laughs> and that even got Pryor irked because he was like, "How are you going to introduce them as Mister Arguello? You can't call me Mister Pryor." Like, you know, the um, God, the uh, the one with HBO um when they did the Legendary Nights, right? Yeah, and they did the one on Pryor Arguello, um. I'm trying to think there was like there was a few people that have like since passed away that were like documented on that and um god his name escapes me right now but he was probably one of my favorite people talking about talking talking on the documentary um well they had like jose torres they had like obviously that burt sugar who else would they have had um for that one Gosh, I don't remember who they would have had for that one. I've seen them all, but it's been a while. But I should know his name. Like, it's just at the moment. Um, but he was really great because he he was featured on a lot of those because he was a prominent, you know, sports writer who's since passed away um, on them. But um, Jerry, he Eisenberg? He was like, hmm? Jerry Eisenberg? Oh, no, definitely not. He was a, that now was a Jerry Eisenberg. But um, he owes... You know, Mr. Arexis Arguello, the conquistador, you know, beautiful, everybody elegant, all that. And then you have Aaron Pryor, who's Grendel. <laughs> and that kind of summed it up at that point. Aaron Pryor was a guy who, like, came up from absolute chaos, who no one, you know, at the at the, 19, uh, at the 1976 Olympic trials lost to Howard Davis. Howard Davis ended up turning pro with a crazy CBS contract after winning an Olympic, uh, Olympic gold medal. Aaron Pryor turned pro with nothing. Aaron Pryor had to scrap for everything he had to go for in his career. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. nothing. He totally, wasn't Howard Davis. Didn't he win the Val Barker trophy too? Totally. Yes, he yeah. did. And I mentioned that too on a past show that 
when the 30th anniversary at the Boston Hall of Fame, the 30th anniversary, um, the 76 team was featured. Uh, was featured. Howard Davis was the last guy to get to speak ahead of Sugar Ray Leonard, which was pretty awesome because he was the head of the team. He was the captain of the team, the Valbrock, uh, like you mentioned, the winner and everything like that. And he was the last guy that was able to speak. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was really unfortunate that he died when he, well, when and how he did, unfortunately. Dude, and, oh my God, man. That's, that's, a, that's a whole story for another subject. But yeah, that's really, really unfortunate. But I'll never forget how, like, how proud he looked when he got up and he was the last one to kind of speak and sum up everything about the 76 team. And at that point, Leon Spinks was still alive and, you know, a couple of them, like the whole team was there with the exception of John Tate, who obviously passed away and um, Clint Jackson, who I think was in jail. So, you know, Sugar and Leonard spoke, um, both Spinks brothers spoke, Chuck Davies, spoke, like all these different, all the guys that were part of the, um, that 76 team, they all spoke. And then Howard Davis got up and you saw like the look, he just had a glow in his face. Like he was just very, you know, he was the, he was the captain of that team. And even though he wasn't the most popular guy over the years, like Leonard was or whoever, whatever it may be, but like, he was still the captain of that team. And he got up and he spoke like he was still the captain. He kind of summed up what that team meant and everything like that. And then the whole journey and all of them, even Leonard, all of them just kind of was looking at him still in admiration. That was a beautiful moment for him. And by by literally every single account, he was like the nicest guy. Howard like, Davis was the nicest guy by like all means. Every, he really like, nice I've never heard yeah. a crossword about him one time ever. And he, uh, you know, his pro career obviously didn't pan out the way that his amateur career did because he was an incredible amateur. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he, he fell short as a pro, but then he became a trainer. And yes. I, I want to say he trained with the UFC for a number of years, too. Yes, he does. Yeah, he was well, he was their striker coach. Yeah, he was like yeah. their boxing coach for mm-hmm. a number of years. And yeah, incredible career. Um, pretty amazing that he, you know, that would that would have been a pretty cool moment of that Hall of Fame for sure. But, um, you know, Howard Davis and figuring back into this entire equation with Alexis Arguello and Aaron Pryor, you know, at 135 and 140 pounds, uh, when Alexis Arguello moved up and he beat Jim Watt and then he beats uh, Ray Mancini, you know, the, like you said, he's kind of like professing his love and uh, showing his gentlemanly qualities after before and after that fight, really. And then I think that his last fight was that defense against Andy, Andy Gannigan, which was, you know, a fun shootout against a guy who could, who was a big puncher. And he wound up just totally chopping Gannigan in half with body punches. It was uh, a fun, you know, whatever, four or five round fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was a beautiful performance. From there, he goes from Andy Gannigan to 140 pounds and absolutely blisters the shit out of Kevin Rooney, who later became known for training Mike Tyson. I mean, only a couple of years later, too, which was pretty crazy. But, I mean, that was like a classic, like, you want to see a shotgun right hand, like a fighter beautifully measuring with his jab, figuring out that distance, and just cracking a right hand from hell onto an opponent. Watch that fight, because James... or. Uh, Kevin Rooney's sitting sitting there on the ropes, like wondering what the fuck just hit him, dude. Like, whoa, what? <laughs> what is this? So that was his entry to 140 pounds. And so it's no, it's no wonder that anybody would be like, yo, this guy is gonna totally beat the shit out of Aaron Pryor, bro. Like, you give him that shot. God damn, nobody's standing up to that right hand. I mean, 
uh, I want to say that Alexis Arguello hadn't lost in like two and a half years or three and a half years or something like that at that point. And his last loss was to like Vilamar Fernandez. It was like a majority decision or something. So, I mean, it, you know, this was not. Yes, it was Vilamar Fernandez. Yeah, Vilamar Fernandez, which is another upset decision. Yep. Yeah, like not even, not, again, nothing to be ashamed of whatsoever. And it was a close decision. So, yeah, going into this fight with Aaron Pryor, this, this contrast of like, Alexis Arguello, you know, he can't be stopped, but then there's Aaron Pryor. He also can't be stopped. Man, the buildup to that fight would have been so amazing. Dude, I mean, watching it too today, like, um, you know, considering where it happened, it happened in Miami, um, the height of like the cocaine era, um, the height of the cocaine era that we've talked about before, like Griselda Blanco, all the other stuff going on around then, like, um, the buildup to it prior finally getting the big fight that he's always wanted our Guayo chasing history, the, the contrast and styles, knowing that where prior is at, where our Guayo was at, like, and then the fight in, in self happening, like prior's perpetual motion. Dude, the guy was an absolute windmill, whether he was enhanced a little bit or not. Like he was just a maniac in the way he fought and our Guayo and his precision punching and the way he was going back and forth, dude, it, it, it produced, what was considered the best fight of the eighties, you know, and with that whole, you know, the black bottle, the black bottle, the one I mixed at the end, that still just added another layer to it. That still holds true today of like mystery and boxing or whatever could be or whatever, like, you know, prior, just prior excelled himself tonight. Like he, you know, that was the fight that he wanted more than anything. And he, and he rose himself to the occasion, whether he was enhanced a little bit, whatever was in that bottle is up to, is up to speculation, but like he rose himself to the occasion. Arguello fought the best way he could have fought. If he had fought Hill McKenty, he would have beat him. You know, what I mean, if he had fought any other junior welterweight champion at the night, like Sal Mambe or um, Lee, um, the guy that he lost the title to, um, Leroy, uh, Leroy, you know, what I'm talking about. Um, well, the guy that Mambe lost the title to, and and others, you know, like the W, yeah, the WBA champion, like. Mm. There, there would have been a chance. There would have been a chance over there. WBC champion. There would have been a chance. Same thing. Like he would have, he would have, he would have won those fights. Like Arguello was fighting at his peak there, right there. Prior, just took himself to another level. Yeah, I and I remember the guy's. I remember the guy's name now. His name is Ralph Wiley. <laughs> yeah. There were there are not too many fighters who would have stood up to a number of the right hands that Arguello just cracked Prior with, and I mean. Dude, that right hand, I think it was like a round or two before Pryor stopped him. The right hand that you see Pryor's head go up and you see like the lights go up there. Yep. That would have flattened anybody. He landed a handful of like really brutal right hands and like got brutal. extension on him too. Like full extension, like, you know, right hand. That was one thing that I guess Aaron Pryor was known for, dude, is if you knock his ass down, it was just going to piss him off. If you hit him, it was well, just going to make him more. fights from that, too. Like, and before that, when Antonio Cervantes, who was a legendary slashing puncher himself, knocked Pryor down. Pryor, before he even knew what, before he even blinked, he was up trying to charge at him. Um, <laughs> I want to say Dewan Johnson was, yeah, totally. <laughs> yep. Dewan Johnson dropped Pryor. Pryor got up trying to go charge at him. Everything. Anytime Pryor was knocked down. He would get up immediately and try and stick his chin out there and try to be like, you know, wanting. He he was on a different level, you know. His energy levels and the way he fought, like, Pryor was incredible, man. If 
only he could have circumvented his demons, which he wasn't able to do. It's no wonder what he could have accomplished because he had that type of style, bro. That was like, not only was it perpetual motion, he wasn't a slugger. And you saw in the Arguello fight, he switched up a couple of times. Like Arguello was able to hold one. Prior first tried to overwhelm him, and he was doing activity-wise, he was doing well at first. But then Arguello like, started countering him, started getting well with it too, and yeah. Prior had to switch up. And then you saw his boxing ability that she didn't really see too often because he was always so you know able to overwhelm everybody. And his boxing ability is very underrated, man. The way he was going in there, jabbing, jabbing, jabbing. The way he was moving his feet. He had beautiful footwork you know, throwing right hands over there. Arguello, who was a little heavy-footed and had to set himself to really get his combinations off, was kind of befuddled for a bit. And you watch him today, and you'd be like, Pryor would have been able to handle himself with anybody in history, especially with the way he was doing that boxing, man, because he was, like, bouncing a lot on that. You saw him moving, pop, 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 You know, like, he was throwing multiple multi-punch flurries while bouncing around, then, you know, jabbing. Like, it was beautiful to watch, man. <laughs> and that was from his amateur background that you can see like prior had so many faces to his style and so he many layers tommy to hearns ass he did whoop tommy hearns ass that's just on youtube yeah before you know as amateurs absolutely man prior was a different level and i don't want to hear the things that everybody you know there's still a consensus that people say that sugar and Lennon avoided aaron prior no he didn't sugar and Lennon avoided didn't avoid anybody could he have fought prior sure I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they could have, but you can't. Yeah, nobody's going to convince me that you avoided Aaron Pryor to fight Tommy Hearns, or you avoided any of those Aaron guys Pryor that he did. Man. Leonard, Leonard's right. career speaks for itself. Come on, any of those guys avoiding Aaron Pryor? No, man. Duran came closest to fighting Pryor. I guess there was like contract ready and other stuff, and it didn't happen for whatever reason. But that was the closest he can get to. And that, that would fight would have been, oh my god, imagine. <laughs> and if it, and and think of this too, Pat, like. This fight, it probably would have happened when it was discussed, would have been when Duran was kind of going through like a little bit of a funk and Pryor was at his absolute peak. So them two combining at that point would have been really interesting because a lot of people would be like, oh, yeah, Duran would have beat him. But if you think of when they actually would have fought, there's a lot of, you know. Could have gotten interesting very quickly. Very, very interesting. Totally. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, generally speaking, I'm just nobody's going to be able to convince me that, like, for instance, Roberto Duran avoided Aaron Pryor to like fight Hagler, or you know, like, oh, you're not going to avoid Pryor yeah, and fight Hagler. You know what I'm saying? Like, so like Pryor, but I, he just he Pryor, came along man. at the wrong time. And Pryor's lucky that he got the Agrail fight because that's kind of felt you know he's that he wasn't going to get lettered. He you know he dogged him around. Remember, he crashed a couple of his press conferences trying to challenge him all this other stuff. He was trying to challenge anyone else to get a big fight out there. Arguello came up there, Arguello challenged him and then ended up falling in his lap and he ended up getting that fight. Like that well, was a and, big one. And bro. remember, sorry to interrupt, but uh, Salvador Sanchez was going to get the Arguello fight. Yes, that was totally. what was going to happen. That was another one too. Yes, if it Sanchez was going to be, die, that's that what they were trying to line up. They were openly yeah. trying to line up. Salvador Sanchez was going to step up to fight, uh, to fight Alexis Arguello. And granted, you know, like, that was like the timing of all of this was super crucial, obviously. But Salvador Sanchez winds up dying in a car crash. Aaron Pryor winds up getting that fight, whatever it was, you know, like not even a year later. Yeah, totally. It's crazy to think about, but that's all that you know, timeline wise. That's how it works. Yeah. yeah. 
So, I mean, even just that that fight, Salvador Sanchez versus Alexis Arguello, that shit's got me salivating. I mean, about, dude, thinking about that, and if you go on the message boards, and it's really 50-50 in how people think, and it should be, because Sanchez was going to, like, jump over Junior Lightweight to challenge Arguello at Lightweight. Light, Arguello was seemingly at its peak around Junior Lightweight, Lightweight. Um and it's fascinating to think about because Sanchez was, you know, much more of a flurrier and like faster on his feet than Arguello was. And, but you know, Arguello and how precise he was. And that, I mean, just God damn, bro. It, that would have yeah. been a fight and a half. Oh, it's so sad like that. And that's the thing about boxing and these what ifs and how you can think about it when someone dies early or whatever it may be like you can, you know, you can speculate and everything like that, but that's one fight. It's so sad that it never came off. It really isn't, you know. And it came so close, too. And it really, really did. You know what I mean? Sanchez, it's been documented that he wasn't interested in fighting Pedroza. Not so much that, like, he was worried about fighting Pedroza, but just, like, he didn't want to fight for the WBA title. Like, he was kind of loyal with him. Yeah. And he found Arguello to be the bigger challenge. And more money, obviously, would be involved in that. So, like, you know. Yeah. Don King... And Don King being cozy with uh, Don Jose Suleiman. Yeah, it, totally, totally. That's just how it goes, you know. Everything like that. Yeah, they just that was the fight that they wanted to make, and that was what they were trying to do, and so on. Yeah. Whew, man. Well, Alexis Arguello bit off a little too much than it. Well, and maybe Aaron Pryor, you know, drank a little more than he could chew too. But Alexis Arguello, you know, he he did. He hit Aaron Pryor with everything he had, and it just wasn't enough. He, he really did. I mean, when he hit him with the Sunday best, and prior came out after taking both the one I missed, one I missed. Um, yeah. Brutal shit, bro. But you know, that's just what happens. And this is the overarching theme of today, starting with Canelo running into Dimitri Bivol. And then we just took it back to history, dude. You know, yeah. everybody's got a do. limit. Every <laughs> fighter can only go up to, you know, their ceiling, and eventually we got to find out what that is. Totally. Hey, dude, I appreciate you doing this recap with me. I can't wait for this weekend, dude. Charlo Castaño rematch is going to oh, be yeah. a whole lot of fun. Talking history with you is always a lot of fun, dude. Always feel like I learn something every time we talk history. Hopefully other As people do, do too, you know? As do I, bro. Hell yeah, bro. Well, appreciate it, man. Hey, everybody who tuned in to this episode, we appreciate you. If you listened in on one of the podcast apps, if you would do us a favor and subscribe, leave a comment, leave a rating, those things are very helpful. We appreciate you again. If you watched on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe there. Also comment, those kinds of things, very helpful there. Uh, on social media, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on both Facebook and Instagram. As far as us individually, my homeboy Eris here is on Twitter as Punch Zone Eris. Me, Patrick Connor, I'm on Twitter as Patrick M. Connor. Bro, we will talk soon, my friend. Most definitely, man. <laughs> Peace out, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.